Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the first of what I consider the true season preview episodes for Real GM Radio. It is with Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite writers, also now one of my favorites to talk to. This is more formatted, at least at the beginning, than what I've been doing recently. We talk about the title contenders, in his opinion, the MVP, and also best player, which I think is a distinction that matters, especially this year. Then we talk about the teams that he thinks are playoff contenders and how he thinks that's going to break out. And then the last point, which I'm going to try to do with everybody during this season preview stretch, is the question that they are most interested in seeing answered. And so that could be a big picture thing. It could be something small with a specific team. And I, I loved his answer for that. It was something that I have written about before but hadn't really considered for that question. So... The conversation starts in that vein that is about the first hour. It stretches a little bit after that. Then we get into a conversation because for Sports Illustrated, they do in their basketball previews, they do a segment I think they call it Behind Enemy Lines, which is about scouts' input. So he had told me about that. So he gave a couple of those, and then we ended up going on some conversations about specific teams with that, Phoenix being probably the most prominent of those, Sacramento as well. And then an hour and a half, we were about to finish, and then I asked him about Kevin Durant. And we decided to talk about Kevin Durant and the Thunder and all the challenges that they have to deal with for about a half an hour. So an hour plus a half an hour plus a half an hour equals about two hours. So it is a long conversation. If you don't want to listen to it in one sitting, don't. You know, listen to it however you want. That doesn't really matter to me, but I think the whole thing is worth your time if you want to give it the time. And thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Danny. How's it going? Doing pretty well. How are you? 
Uh, really good. You know, we're, we're starting to get ramped up a little bit. Media day was uh, a nice uh, jolt, I think, to the offseason. And things are starting to kind of crystallize in front of us. Some teams are already taking hits, like Chicago or Coach Kerr's, I think, the leap of absence. So we're starting to get storylines even more quickly, I think, than I was expecting. And we're getting close to actual basketball, which means that we can feel more confident about actually doing a season preview, which excites me. Uh, oh, no doubt. I mean, I feel like I've been previewing the season for like two and a half months now. So it's nice that the season's actually coming around the corner as opposed to still being two and a half months off the district. So I, I think the place to start with this is I like to start at the top. And so you can define the term however you want, but what is the group of teams that you consider title contenders? Well, uh, that is a good question. I think I've evolved a little bit on that. You know, I started off earlier in the summer thinking it was a pretty tight uh, three, three-team three group, and I think the three teams most people would, would put in there with Cleveland, Golden State, and San Antonio. And I think the more I've looked at it, the more I've really kind of wanted to talk myself uh, into the Oklahoma City Thunder. And then from there, that's, you know, kind of bled over, and now I'm talking myself into the Houston Rockets. And then that, bled, that bled over, and now I'm talking myself into the Clippers, and so now I'm at this place where I've got six teams, and six teams feels like too much, you know. So are all those teams going to be able to make it through unscathed and, and actually be contenders by the end of the season? I'm not sure. Uh, of the six, I think the most confident, uh, you know, I am about any of them would be the first three still. So maybe that makes them the top tier. Uh, but if it is a second tier with Oklahoma City, Houston, and the Clippers in there, I mean, to me that's still a really, really strong second tier, and it's not maybe the full step that or maybe used to, uh, to seeing. And I think what really got me going, you know, it's just thinking about the potential uh, of Kevin Durant coming back in and, and how transformative that's going to be. I think I, I looked uh, the last five or six years when he's been in the lineup, they win at a 56 game, you know, 56 to win pace over the course of an 82 game season. So they're basically guaranteed contenders when he's on the court. Of course, a lot of that time has been with uh, Russell Westbrook. Uh, so that's a big time, uh, you know, talent pairing. Uh, but to me, you know, Durant's got every reason in the book to turn in a career year this season. I mean, you look at the free agency stuff, uh, you look at the frustration of coming back from injuries, you look at the new coach and potentially unleashing him a little bit. You look at him, you know, he's reached age 27 now. I mean, he just turned 27 this week. That's when LeBron, that's when Michael are winning titles. And he's been frustrated for years about his inability to get over the top. It's been quite a while since he's been in the finals. I mean, to me, there's just so many motivations there for him. To, to really go nuts. And also, he's the kind of person I think who would take uh, it a little personally that, you know, the Warriors have become this, you know, new sexy team and Curry sort of like the face of the league a little bit. I think that would rub him the wrong way. I think he'd feel like, you know, that happened when he was out and it's time for him to sort of restore order a little bit. Uh, so I think it's really my faith in Kevin Durant's, you know, overall talent ability that, that gets me so excited about Oklahoma City and makes me think more than anything else that we should be expanding that group a little bit. And also, I like the fact that they can go small. You know, one thing I'm really looking at with the contenders is who can counter, you know, the Draymond Green at center thing. Uh, and to me, I think if you've got, you know, Ibaka at the five and, and Durant at the four, Westbrook at the one and two shooters, I think that's about as, you know, potent as you can get uh, in a small ball look. And so the resistance that we saw from previous coaching staffs might not be there anymore, and I hope it's not there anymore. And then all of a sudden, we could be in a situation where we're getting to see some really electric basketball between the Warriors and Thunder because both teams are just, you know, playing with five guys who are comfortable being on the perimeter, uh, and both those teams in that situation would be. So, 
that's one reason why I'm kind of getting more and more excited about the Thunder, even though they do face a bunch of questions. From there, I just don't think the gap between like their talent and Houston's talent or the Clippers' talent is that big. So it's almost like if you let the Thunder in, I feel like I have to let the other two in too. I'll, I'll disagree with you on one small point. I think your your concept on the Thunder is spot on with what I think, and the line is the Clippers. I think that the way that I define a championship contender is any team that I think you can think realistically that at full strength they can beat any other team. And so I think that's why the Thunder have to be in there is because while we we might disagree on on how likely they are to be full strength, if they get there, and they are, I think they can beat anybody. I think that they are, in many ways, the best setup team to beat the Warriors just because their strengths are really hard to counter. But the Clippers don't have that because, to me, the, what the Clippers do not have are those incandescent talents that require double teams. Blake Griffin is great. DeAndre Jordan is great. Chris Paul was, until last year, the best point guard in the league. But I don't see them really having that. They're, they're a deep team. They're one of those teams that I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them make the conference finals, but I would be very surprised to see them win the title. And the other team you, you brought up that you added to your group that I am in firm agreement on is Houston. And what I think has been kind of underappreciated this summer is how much harder they got to beat at, at full strength with the idea of Ty Lawson. Ty Lawson is a really good player when he's at his best, and he gives them something that they did not have at all last year. The Rockets had the second-best record in the West and made the conference finals without Patrick Beverly, despite not having not only not having a, a secondary ball handler next to Harden, but not having another primary ball handler that you would trust. And that was a huge weakness on the, on that team. They ended up, you know, doing well. I, I don't think anybody would be disappointed with how their season turned out. But that makes them so much more dangerous at their best. It might take longer to work itself out, but I think you have to include them in the conversation because of the talent they have. Yeah, so with Houston, I put this out there, and it's not necessarily something that I feel strongly about, but I do think it's worth talking. I mean, I think you can make an argument that the Lawson addition and just sort of the transfer of talent that Houston had going out versus bringing Lawson in made them sort of a bigger winner than the Spurs adding LaMarcus, given some of the pieces that they had to sacrifice along the way, whether it was Splitter and Baines in the front court and, and then Corey Joseph in the back court. I mean, I just think it's such a clean win for them to be able to add that piece of talent without really sacrificing anything directly or indirectly. Now, clearly, San Antonio also added David West and some other things, too. But if you're looking at, like, one game-changing addition, you know, who made it more cleanly and who's going to reap the benefits of it, I think you can make an argument that it was Houston. You know, I actually kind of like Ty Lawson's trash talking towards Steph Curry a little bit about, you know, uh, how he didn't have to work during the playoffs. I think one thing about the Warriors run, it was incredible in so many different ways, but one of the most incredible aspects of it was I didn't think that Curry or Thompson really had an A-plus playoffs across the board. I think Curry really had some great moments. I mean, of course, the, the series-changing game at Houston, uh, of course, the shot against New Orleans, uh, you know, some other moments in there. Uh, some of his, you know, just toying with Della Vadova late in the finals was, you know, remarkable. But, like, night-to-night, -night, really super consistent A-plus performances, I didn't see it. Uh, and he had the benefit of, uh, you know, a lot of guys being injured, you know, at his matchup positions, whether it was Conley, early in that series, Kyrie, so on and so forth. Uh, so I think there was some truth. 
Yeah, so I think that as, yeah, exactly, Drew Holiday. So I think uh, there was some truth to what he was saying, um, even if it was maybe a little blunt and, and out of turn for somebody who's not really won anything and, and, and all that. But I think it sets the stage nicely between those two teams. I and mean, I'm really excited to see what's going to happen when those two teams go up because I think you know, Lawson's ability to create pace just basically by himself makes Houston even trickier and slipperier to defend because they're already playing at this fast pace. They already are so good at getting up and down. Uh, his ability to create shots around the basket, his ability to, to drive the kick. Uh, I mean, so many different things about him make him a really tricky matchup. And he's really going to make Steph work or whoever they're going to have to, you know, cross-match onto him. I mean, that person's really going to have to work and it's going to make Harden's life a lot easier. Agreed, and also why Houston's offseason was impressive in that way is that they corrected their biggest weakness, which is something the Spurs didn't do. I mean, if Tony Parker is any less than Tony Parker was even, let's say, two years ago when they won the title, it gets hard for them because I think we talked about this the last time we we, we had one of these, is that they don't have people to create seams. They have great players to exploit them. When they've had those the whole run, Danny Green is one of the best catch-and-shoot guys in the whole league, but he can't really dribble. Kawhi is getting better at that. And so if Parker can't do it, Patty Mills might be able to. Kyle Anderson might, underscore, might be able to. But they get a lot more beatable if that's the case. Also, their their defense is still going to be great. I mean, LaMarcus isn't Tiago Splitter, but they're still going to be great. But they aren't as cohesively defensively capable as they were before because you knew last year that they were going to that if they wanted to they could have a, a very very good rim protector on the floor all the time that's not completely true anymore and i think that it it obviously when you have two elite defenders like they do you don't worry about that as much but it does still matter and i the the point that i'm at with them and while i think that for these teams you don't have to think about the regular season as much because, you know, it doesn't matter as much. I think right now you can make an argument, and I probably would, that the Rockets are the most likely two-seed. That doesn't mean I think they're the second-best team. I don't think they're the second-best team. But I think they care about it, and I think they're more resilient because they have depth at a lot of pe- places than a team like the Spurs and the Thunder, of course. Yeah, I think the the big argument against Houston running the table like that would be Dwight's health. You know, and then what do they do if, if he goes down and misses time? They did very well without him last year, but is that sustainable? And we know they kind of outperformed their point differential. Uh, so is that something that, you know, continues again? And then, uh, you know, the, the second thing is just sort of with Harden. I mean, Harden had an unbelievable season. And so, you know, is he going to continue on the upward trajectory where he's able to beat that and continue doing it uh, for another 82-game stretch thing, you know, in remarkable health? Uh, or does something catch up to him, or you know, does he take a step back, or or just does he not have that A plus season? Uh, I could see that going a lot of different ways. I mean, I think he definitely deserves to be you know right near the very top of the MVP candidates list uh, right off the bat. I think they have a very high ceiling as a team. I guess you know the Dwight thing does worry me a little bit, but yeah, I mean, I think they're going to be right there, and I think you're going to have potentially a, a pretty intense race in the Western Conference. You know, it's pretty top heavy. I think you have a lot of teams shooting for 55-plus wins. I mean, I kind of see the Thunder in that mix for sure. I think the, the Spurs are always in that mix. I can definitely see them in it. And I think because of the depth that you mentioned about the Clippers, you know, I agree. I think they're pretty flawed. I think that's a weird, big question. They've, they've added talent to the bench, but that talent doesn't really seem to go together that well. Uh, I really like the idea of Josh Smith as a five for them in certain lineups. So, like, if you don't have to play DJ, 
uh, or you can't play DJ in certain situations. You could put Josh out there and, and have him in play, be the four and five. You know, I really like that idea as an upgrade for them. So I think in the regular season, they're absolutely going to be in that high 50s range in terms of wins. I just think that uh, we can't take anything for granted for either one of these teams because if you do have that one injury that kind of sets you sideways, that you're not expecting it all of a sudden, things look a lot yeah, I agree with you. And something I wanted to ask you, I talked about it with Sarah Tsohi, is I think that the Clippers have a lot of fun flexibility in terms of what they could do, especially playing Josh Smith at the four with the starters and letting Blake run the show with the bench. But I am completely convinced that Doc would never consider doing something like that. Do you agree with me? Yeah, it's it's really hard to know because Doc never really had choices with this like, Clippers team, right? Like their bench has just been so bad that it's just he's just trying to get ten minutes, you know, five minutes here, ten minutes there. Or can we even go seven players deep? I mean, that's sort of been the Clippers' way these last couple of years, and now he's going to have some real choices. Uh, and there's a lot of skepticism from people like in the league that I've talked to about, like how well do these choices actually work together? When you look at uh, positionally, I mean, number one, like is whoever they start at small forward going to be a downgrade from Matt Barnes in terms of filling that specific role for that specific team? I think there's a really you know strong argument, even if you put Paul Pierce into that role, that you're already downgrading uh, you know at that that starting three spot. Now you're looking at the bench, and it's you know are you confident that guys like Lance Stevenson, Jamal Crawford, Austin Rivers are all going to be able to get the best out of each other? Uh, are you confident you can get the best out of Josh Smith's playmaking abilities if you're playing him along with these other guys who are going to have the ball and could be pounding it the whole time? Uh, I think those are really, really fair questions. And then, you know, how willing is Doc to break up what was an incredibly efficient starting five last year? I mean, to me, the loss of Matt Barnes is potentially one of the underrated stories uh, of the season just because of how well they played as a unit with him on the court. You know, I'm not the biggest Matt Barnes fan, but you look at, like, the splits, offensive efficiency, defensive efficiency, net rating, uh, of that starting lineup, and they were you know, blowing teams out of the water consistently, and they've been doing that for a couple of years. Uh, that group really, really works. Uh, if you throw Wesley Johnson into that, you know, is that going to keep happening? I'm a little bit dubious of that. And then, you know, does Paul uh, present any problems with his age? You know, personally, I like him better as a, a stretch four off the bench in an ideal world, but I think maybe they don't have a better option than starting him uh, once the push comes to shove. So, you know, if that starting lineup isn't as good as it's been these last two years, that's going to require real flexibility and open-minded thinking from Doc Rivers. And I think you're fair to wonder if that's going to happen because we just really haven't seen it and they haven't been in a position to do it. So I think he's going to sense that something's wrong if it's not where they were these last couple of years. I think he's going to hope that he can just try to get by on the talent of the superstars. Uh, I think he's going to feel some pressure to keep DJ on the court more this year just because of the way that the summer went. I think that could be a good thing or a bad thing. And so all these are very, very fair questions. Uh, just to go back to why I have them in my, you know, kind of contenders discussion, really it's just out of respect to the talent of Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. You know, mm-hmm. anytime you have two guys who are that good uh, and are both, you know, playing at super elite levels right now, I think that Blake deserves to be in this MVP conversation this season as well, uh, based on the strides he made last year and what we saw during the postseason. Uh, if he continues to build on that, I think he, he needs to be in this, you know, kind of the top five, top six candidates. Uh, conversation because we know what they're going to put up, you know, pretty nice win total during the regular season. So to me, that's why I think they kind of belong. But I think past those, you know, two, and maybe if you want to throw DJ and Reddick in there, I mean, those are their four dollar quantities. Past those guys, I think all the lineup questions remain completely unanswered. 
uh, and there's a lot of potential headaches and conflicts among the personalities of their you know, guys from 5 to 15. You, you you hit on something really important there with the five-man lineup, you know, with Matt Barnes, and something that I've been thinking about is that if last season was close to an aberration, I think the most logical player to fill that fifth spot is actually Lane Stevenson, because it would be really precarious, especially in the Western Conference, but just generally, to play a starting lineup that does not have a swingman defender that you trust. You know, that that's Wesley Johnson has never done that in his career. Paul Pierce now defensively is probably more of a power forward than a small forward, and that's fine. There's, that's not a criticism. That's just what he is now. And while Lance is more of a two than a three, I think you can be flexible enough with him. And Redick, you know, Redick can hold his own against the guy, the small forwards that are the second best offensive player of the two. You know, the, those guys are generally not as potent. There aren't many teams, actually, that have a strong two and three offensively, especially with Oklahoma City's tr- troubles. So I think that's there. But if Lance plays the way he did last year, you can't do that. He was horrendous Correct. last year. And Correct. S- and Correct. so no, That would kill the golden goose of the offense because, you know, you have to have spacing from that spot for that, you know, the pick and roll score so that Reddick's getting his shots so that Blake's got room to operate. You can't just put Lance out there in the quarter on offense because, you know, his guy's going to let him take absolutely any shots that he wants, and he showed that he can't hit it last year. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really important point in there. And talking about Blake Griffin, unless you have more to say on this, the, the, other, the next thing I wanted to talk about with you, and you can, this is another one, you can define it how you want. So I was thinking of it in terms of, MVP candidates, but if you find it more interesting, you can define it as MVP, most outstanding player, or just straight-up best player. But the people that you think are in contention for whichever one you want to talk about. Yeah, so I'm pretty traditionalist on that. I, I'm fine with the MVP being kind of a quagmire and everybody having their own definitions. You know, it doesn't bother me that much. I don't think the most outstanding is always the same as the most valuable, but I'm more interested in sort of like who's going to be the most valuable. Uh, but so to me, I think you've got to throw, uh, you know, of course, Curry's got to be in the mix. Anthony Davis's got to be in the mix. <clears throat> Harden's got to be in the mix. Uh, Blake's got to be in the mix. Uh, I think the most interesting one, honestly, from the MVP standpoint is like, is LeBron going to be a serious candidate this year? And, you know, you see the Shumpert injury already, you know, Kyrie, you know, working his way back. Kevin Love's working his way back. Tristan's holding out. He's kind of a question mark. Uh, there's Yao's out. I mean, all of a sudden, are we in this position where it's like, hey, LeBron, do you really, do we need a lot more from you than we were hoping to get from you early in the season, uh, just like last year? Uh, I think we could be. So maybe that kind of gets him back into this conversation rather than him coasting through like the first 50 games, maybe like he wants to in an ideal world. Um, so I think it's a little bit of a usual suspect here, uh, from the MVP, uh, standpoint. Uh, was there anybody who I, just listed that I, you think I miss? Westbrook. Uh, Westbrook. Yeah, so to me, I think it's going to be one of those things where, fair or not, Durant comes back, the power of the two of them winning again, because that's basically what happens whenever they share the court is they win in a very, you know, a really, really solid clip, and then it's going to be Durant getting all the credit because he's the one who's back. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's fair. And that's also, for me, why I, I think it's more fun to talk about it in terms of best player, just because that avoids the political arguments. One thing before we move on to best player, because I do want to talk about it a little bit. I, I Right now, and we still have time, I've, anyway, I don't have 
put down a firm prediction now. Anyway, I think LeBron has a very good chance at winning MVP because not only do you have a team that, barring catastrophe, is going to be the best team in their conference, which certainly helps because you just see a team at the top of the at the top of the list day in day out. That really helps. But the narrative is easier now for LeBron than it was because you're not for the first month of the season at plus more probably. We're not going to be talking about it as LeBron, like LeBron, Kyrie, and Kevin. It's going to be LeBron and friends. And that is important if they're winning at that point, and I think they will be because they're still better than everyone in their conference, to build that out. And this is the first year that I think you can make an argument that he is benefiting from the idea of it being most valuable, not most outstanding. Because what I've always thought with LeBron is, you know, why he's why he was so special particularly peak LeBron with the Heat, was he was in the conversation, if not the best offensive player in the league. But what made him different was he was the only one of those players in the offensive conversation that was an elite defender. And he's not an elite defender anymore. Maybe he brings it back. I hope he does, but I doubt it. It's just not realistic at this point. But So what that does is it kind of, it, it, it takes him a little bit, it makes it harder to argue that he's the best player, though he's still amazing. But his value to that team is that he will probably be the alpha and the omega anyway. Some of that is his own doing in a way that I think could be considered a criticism. But when you're thinking about it as most valuable, he will be that guy with the team. The other player that I think is on the fringe of MVP is Chris Paul. I think this could be the year that he falls off a little bit. I hope not. But he, I think, has to be in the conversation as well just because he's that good. Totally. And with Chris, I mean, I think he's... You know, perennial All NBA guy, no question. I mean, still, I think he's got a couple years left of that. Uh, I guess I just lean more towards Blake as being the MVP candidate that comes from their team, based on kind of the ascendancy uh, and the newness. And I think, unfortunately, like newness does count for something in this conversation, right? If we're trying to forecast like how voters are going to be thinking, like Chris Paul being amazing for the tenth straight season doesn't always uh, have the same effect as you know Blake Griffin really having the, the next level breakout, you know? And he was, uh, so and, I think it, and he was never high pro, he was never high profile enough to get a lifetime achievement MVP. You know, this isn't a situation like Kobe where it, they, people kind of felt like, okay, well at some point, you know, at some point we're going to need to do this. And he had a really good year. So here we go. Chris Paul, not only because of his, you know, just his, his persona is different. He's never even made the finals, much less won the titles that Kobe won. So he, he has to earn it, which is good. I mean, I think that anybody should, but it makes it a lot harder because, as you said, you, so there are kind of two narrative strains that are running against him, and that's tough. And also, just the Clipper, it's harder to, it's harder to see, assuming the Warriors finish better than the Clippers, which I think is pretty reasonable, it's harder to see Chris Paul getting a lion's share of that credit than it is for Stephen Curry, too. Totally. Absolutely. I agree with that, and especially the lifetime achievement thing. Like, if the Clippers won the title this year, you could talk me into Chris Paul being the MVP next year, even if he didn't have that great of a year, because it's kind of like a makeup call. But coming off of the last year's playoffs, I think everybody's pretty skeptical of Chris Paul. Uh, whether or not it's fair to blame him for what happened, I just think, you know, in general, Clippers skepticism is pretty high at this point. And, I mean, look, they, they blew the 3-1 lead, so they have to own that. And I think, for the most part, from what I've heard and you know, talking to Lakers a little bit over the summer, like, they are trying really hard to all that. So that's, you know, good for them. Going back to LeBron real quick, I mean, it's pretty annoying how we have to constantly come up with 
new reasons why you should be an MVP candidate, right? Like, we have to conjure up these changing narratives that you're mentioning. Uh, and you do have to because that's just kind of the nature of the beast. But, yeah, I mean, there's no question you should be, you know, a top two, three candidate every single season, uh, you know, regardless of circumstances. Him missing, you know, 10 or 12 games felt like that was, like, you know, totally took him out of the conversation last year, which, you know, for some other guys, you know, that hasn't been the case, again, because they're newer faces. Uh, and that's kind of frustrating. I mean, at some point, voters might want to be looking kind of bigger picture and thinking, like, how many MVPs does LeBron deserve to have over the course of his career? Because, you know, the window for his MVP-level play is starting to close a little bit, right? And you know, are we going to look back and think that he got shortchanged on the MVPs? Like, I kind of feel like Jordan got shortchanged on MVPs a little well, bit. of course he did, uh, yeah. Towards, yeah. Towards, you know, especially towards you know the latter part of his career, and so does that start to come into the conversation where, like, if I had a vote, I might start to think like, you know, has LeBron really had enough of these awards, uh, received enough of these awards to justify how great he was for how long he was great? Uh, that that question might influence, you know, how I looked at the race next season if I had a vote. I was talking about it on, on Gchat with somebody. It might have been Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. I can't remember. I think it was. I was complaining about Chris Paul not winning an MVP because I thought he should have won that best year in best year when he was on the Hornets. And then I looked back at it, and it really shook me because I was looking back at a lot of different components of that year, and I was kind of, kind of building this case in my head of, like, oh, Chris Paul should have won the MVP. The guy who probably was the most deserving MVP that year was LeBron. Super young LeBron. And... I think that there's a there's a delay on it as well. So like I think that people didn't appreciate that he was the best player in the league. They appreciated that too late, and then it'll probably fall off a little bit earlier. But at the same time, I'm not huge on the idea of lifetime achievement awards for a guy who's already achieved a lot in his lifetime. You know, like that's with LeBron. I don't think people need to go. Oh well, he won you know eight MVPs because. People know that he's one of the best ever, and he's probably never going to be considered the greatest ever, and that's a conversation we can have another day. But I, I think that there is, but you're, you're right that there is a difference between what I think about this and what voters think. But I want to move on, unless you have a strong opinion on that, to, so we already talked, I'll see if I can rattle off the players that we talked about. So it was Davis, Curry, West, Westbrook maybe, Durant, Harden, LeBron, um, and, and yeah, I think that's the list. If we were talking about best player, are there any other people that were not in that group that we just discussed that you feel could be at the end of this year, we could be thinking are the best player in the NBA? No. And I think actually the best player conversation is shorter. Uh, you know, to me at this point, it's basically three players and maybe four, but to me it's LeBron, KD and Anthony Davis. Uh, you know, we just did our top 100 rankings, uh, and we went one, two, three, LeBron, KD, and Anthony Davis. And really, outside of concerns about KD's health, there wasn't much of conversation at number two. Uh, and surprisingly, at number three, where I think, you know, Curry and Harden and Paul and these other guys, you know, might want to get into the mix there, uh, we didn't have much hesitancy putting Anthony Davis at number three, uh, with Curry at number four. So to me, I mean, it's always hard to forecast like what's going to happen 12 months from now, but I really find it hard to believe that, you know, we're going to have this conversation in October 2016, and one of those three guys won't be regarded as the best player uh, in basketball. I really feel pretty strongly that it's it's that tight. It's, it's LeBron, it's KD, and it's Davis. 
That's interesting because I, I think Curry's in that conversation for a simple reason that actually goes back to something I just said about LeBron, which is that none of those players are dominant enough defensively right now, and I think Curry's the best offensive player in the league. I think that as long as you have a competent coach and you have, which the Warriors didn't have for a while, and you have you know the, a decent complement of players... I think that Curry can propel a team to be in the best offensive in a way that Chris Paul does as well, but Curry is closer to that right now, and he's more versatile because he's a scorer and he's a passer at this point in his career. I I can totally see, the. I will make no arguments that the other three should be in there. I think Harden deserves consideration. I think that there's a possibility. I think he's underrated in that way, that he's another player. And like LeBron in his, in his younger years, Harden brings extra value because he does something that is unconventional for his position, which means that you can handle him a little bit differently. So you can put you can put more guys next to him. And I'm going to go, I'm not going to say it's likely, but the other guy who I, there is an outside chance, let's say less than 5%, that he is in this conversation is DeMarcus Cousins. DeMarcus Cousins is the most physically talented big man in the league. I don't think he will put it all together to pass Anthony Davis, but I feel that the conversation of, Looking at it a year from now, not right now, but looking at it a year from now, would be incomplete without mentioning that possibility. Okay, I mean, if you want to put him on the also receiving votes list, I'm okay with that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm he's more, not above I'm any more, of the other guys. Yeah. yeah, I'm more skeptical of Cousins, I think, than you are. Although I appreciate you know, everything he's doing, I think one thing that you know, I don't want to be the guy who can't take steps for you. I mean, that's the most annoying person in the entire world right now, right? Especially given the season that they just put together. Uh, so I hear what you're saying, everything about him. I think one one area where he comes in fourth to me behind the other three for sure is just sort of the versatility aspect, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, if you're building a team from scratch, and this does kind of go into my thinking when I'm thinking about who's the best player. Like, if you're building a team from scratch, absolutely, you know, if you've got anything resembling shooting or, or anything resembling court scaping, you know, Steph's going to give you an unbelievable offense. But, you know, when you're looking – that matchups when you're looking at trying to make the most out of any five-man combination like does how much does versatility play into that and you know to me i see the other guys as just sort of multi-positional guys uh where you know i i tend to value that uh you know i think it's all about like the pelican success to me it's all about can they find the right people to make the most out of what davis can, you know can they find that right line of combination uh, and they could really take off uh, I think the Thunder is the same thing. It's like they've been really, really good. Almost whoever Scott Brooks put around uh, Kevin Durant, regardless of how logical those lineups seems, you know, how much more amazing can they be if they just get that fit quite right? Um, so uh, that versatility aspect is just one thing that I look at when I talk about the best players that I think maybe uh, Jim mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's a great point. One, I-, I love Anthony Davis. I'm not saying it to criticize him, but – I've been having trouble this summer, as somebody who loves Anthony Davis, with the argument that he is the only player in that group that I think plopping him on a team doesn't assure you of a dominant offense or a defense. Some of that is because he's good at both and he makes them both better, and he just he's not as as extreme on either end, which isn't necessarily criticism because his overall he helps you on both ends, which some of those guys do a lot less. But I worry a little bit about that in terms of us overrating him as a, in the in more actually in the valuable conversation in that I think that it will take a little bit of time. Some of that is because it's hard for a natural power forward to do that, especially when he's not 
you know, supreme in any particular, you know, like Dirk was the best seven foot shooter of all time. He's a very good ball handler. He's one of those kind of like the parallel I'd make is Brandon Roy, where he's uh, does a lot of things really well, but he doesn't do any singular, any single thing so well that you're going to do that. That's not to say that Anthony Davis shouldn't be in this conversation, but I think that that makes him stand out because he could be there. I mean, he's so young. I could be sitting here two months from now saying, wow, like I should have known that that was coming. But at this point, speaking to what we have already seen, I think that is still true. For sure. And I'm forecasting. I mean, yeah. part of it is that I do, I do have faith that Gentry is going to be able to, you know, unlock some stuff that Lonnie did. I mean, I, I've kind of followed Lonnie's career just back from when he was in Portland and as an assistant and, and just kind of watching them last year. It just never seemed like he really fully embrace what he already had with Anthony Davis. Like, he didn't quite realize how good Anthony Davis was at that moment. Uh, and then the other reason why I'm a little bit bullish on Anthony Davis is just because at USA Basketball Camp, he looked like an absolute freaking monster physically. Like, he didn't participate, but I mean, he definitely put on weight. He's filling out. He's just continuing to grow into that quote-unquote man strength or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's just every time I see him, it seems like he's taking another leap forward physically and then you start to think about how dominant was he last year you know, in terms of the advanced stats and all of that, and now you're adding you know this much muscle on top of that and a better approach on top of that. You know, my, my big question with them is just Holiday. Like, and it's such a bummer that he's going to be on the, the minutes restriction and now they've, they've got to figure out this positional stuff for like Tyrese the point guard maybe, or I guess not maybe. I guess that's really their best option. But then the you know, Holiday comes back midway through the season. And now you're going to try to have him do it. Uh, you know, none of that stuff is great for Anthony individually, and I think it contributes to what you're sensing, which is like, you know, he doesn't have that transformative capability right now because he's reliant on other people. And I definitely think he's reliant on his teammates in a way that the other three guys, Curry, uh, LeBron, and, and Durant aren't, you know, because he's not the ball handler, he's not the initiator, you know, he, he's got to be set up. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good way of thinking about it and kind of articulating the issue. And with him, it's easier to do the projection part of it because players who are as good as he was last year, and I mean, I say as good because there are very few that ever have been, they do really well. You know, other than, let's they were obviously steps down as players. The only two I can think of offhand that were really good at such a young age and didn't really improve are Kyrie Irving and Andres Biedrens. And those guys weren't half as good. You know, they were never MVP candidates as young as Davis is. And so you, you, you're right to build from that because that is what happens. When LeBron was Davis's age, he was really good. He did well. And you have to, there are few examples, but the few examples just make you think that even though it's, in a way, it's inconceivable because when you look at his box score stats and you think, like, is it really reasonable for him to improve? That... We were wondering the same stuff with a guy like LeBron back in those days. It's just that it, we don't think about that now because we have so much history that was then present to overflow what we were thinking at the time. Yeah, I think one last argument that you know just puts Davis back in the MVP conversation and put the best conversation that I did mention earlier is just that he might have the laziest narrative possible, right? Like he's the Unbelievable. He's the next phenom. He's the most physically dominant. And if New Orleans just wins 50 plus games, so they take that next, clear next step forward and they've got a new coach, it's like the easiest possible story to sell. So like if you're an MVP voter who just mails in your ballot and you just don't care and you're like, uh, what, what should I do? 
Anthony Davis is like, you know, the rubber stamp. It's like the easiest thing to sell. Uh, and because he's a nice guy, he's got no character red flags. I mean, he's got all the highlights of the world. Uh, you know, he's regularly on SportsCenter and so on and so forth. I think that's one other thing about putting him in that MVP conversation. Maybe it doesn't apply to that best player conversation that we were just having, but, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think he's got to be a strong candidate in the other one. It's You're right, and also it helps that he doesn't have really famous, popular teammates. You know, he has guys that people respect around the league, like Tyreek Evans and Drew when he's healthy, and if Eric Gordon plays like he did last year, Eric Gordon. But none of those guys, he doesn't have a Dwayne Wade or Russell Westbrook or Kevin Durant, you know, a guy who you say, oh, well, it's not just him. If he wins, if they, if he wins, I said that even, that even confirms the narrative <laughs> in my head. If the Pelicans win, he gets all the credit. He deserves almost all of it and, and will get it. And so you're right. It kind of parallels LeBron with the Cavs the first time that, you know, while he had other guys that were on those teams and Nate Duncan gives me crap sometimes because I, I, th- I think of those teams as being a superlative individual accomplishment for LeBron, but you know, they were good teams and he gets, and Davis deserves credit for that. And so you're right that MVP voters will see that, especially because he has the box score stuff. You're right. It's, it's, it's a perfect narrative because the weaknesses in it are all nuanced. You know, that's the only way that you can do it. And if you, if the only weaknesses you can do are the types of things that I've been saying, like, oh, you know, well, he's not, you can't, he can't carry an offense. He can carry a defense. Like the people who care about those sorts of arguments, aren't like the, the people who don't care about those aren't going to be listening to people like me anyway. So he doesn't need to worry about yeah, that. I, I was just, I was just going to say those people don't know what a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, so any, uh, do you have anything else in this? Or you want to move on? Should we talk about Harden just a little bit more? I mean, I feel like Houston fans would probably think from that conversation that we're shortchanging him. And I mean, I think that him taking another step forward above last season is an absolute possibility given his age, given the, the help that he's got around him. Uh, I think he's going to be in a position where they've sort of answered it's his team, it's not Dwight's team. I think Dwight's now on board with that, kind of just talking to him last year a little bit before the playoffs. Uh, so all of that sets up really nicely for him, not only in the MVP conversation, but also in the best overall player conversation. I agree, and it also helps him that he's a little bit younger. He just turned 26 a couple a month and a half ago, so it's more it's more likely kind of that he gets there. And he is a guy that is incredibly notoriously hard to officiate. And if officials start giving him more of the benefit of the doubt, I mean, he gets calls, but if he gets even more calls considering the way he plays, he can just start throwing out you know just like video game numbers because. He is, I mean, when you watch him, I, I was fortunate enough to, you know, to get to cover that series, the Western Conference Finals, and to see him in person. I, at certain points, you just kind of, if you were, if you were refing his games, you just have to put your hands in the air and be like, yeah, I guess that was a foul. Because he is a master at using the conditioning of officials and, and teammates and opponents, most importantly, to his advantage. You know, he can take a situation, make it look like there should be a foul there, but there wasn't a foul, so he gets the call, but has also spent that time positioning himself to get a better possibility for the end one, which is really devious. Like that's it's a type of thing that most guys I don't I don't even think they have the capacity to think about it that way. And he's been doing that since college. He's been doing that since high school a little bit, but more since college. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, he's 
an absolute force. I think he's another one of those guys, <clears throat> going back to what you said earlier about Curry, where you know, can you create an offense out of him basically no matter where you put him? And I think the answer is yes. You know, I think he's basically done in Houston. I mean, maybe it's not on the same level of the elite efficiency that we saw at Golden State because, you know, Steph's range and his ability to pull up off the dribble and his ability to pull up in transition, I mean, that is totally unique. No one else is doing that. Uh, so it's a little bit, you know, different stylistically. Uh, but I think that you could have a really, really, really good offense with Harden, almost regardless of who you put around him. I think we saw that actually his first year in Houston, you know, it's like, uh, that wasn't the most talented roster, and he he still had them in the playoffs, and uh, you know he was still able to to carry a huge load by himself. So uh, I think he kind of fits in that same category with guys like Durant uh, and Curry in terms of being like the offense in and of, in and of themselves, regardless of the pieces around. Yeah, uh, and one other point that I think makes that really impressive is that. Curry has now a great coach and great surrounding talent to make him look good and, you know, to maximize his unique strengths. The Warriors, with similar talent, were 12th in offense, Mark Jackson's last year. The Rockets, which were arguably a more flawed team with Kevin McHale, who's a more traditional coach, though obviously he has embraced more of the, you know, the analytic, kind of analytically minded things, they were fourth in offense two years ago. Like, that's what's incredible about this, is we talked about the idea that you can do it with Harden, and that was with Patrick Beverly as his point guard, who is distinctly not, like, he doesn't, like, he doesn't maximize Harden's strengths in the same way that Ty Lawson does. I think that this year could help remind people that he is similarly special, he just does it in a different way. And what hurts him in terms of MVP is that he can be so frustrating to watch. And we talked about how Davis's case <laughs> yeah. is easy. Harden is unbelievable. I mean, when he's a guy who, when I watched him, you know, game after game in the playoffs in particular, I became more and more impressed and enamored with him as a player. But if you were more casual, if you, if the way that you watched the Rockets was through Sports Center or through, you know, maybe you flip on one of their games every once in a while. He doesn't do it in that way. He he's actually he's he's probably the least flashy offensive star that wasn't a big man that I can think of. You know, big men obviously they do it in a different way. You know, you think about somebody like Shaq, but Harden is he's hard to appreciate. He's it's just it's challenging, and that's part of the reason. Well, he's I, also he's also real quick. He's also easy ahead. to dislike, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I oh yeah. Like him, and, him and Chris Paul, they're both very easy to dislike. And I'm not saying that I dislike it personally, but I think for the casual fan and for maybe the MVP voter, they're easy to dislike. And that kind of comes against them. Anyway, go on. And both of them, I've having interacted with them directly, you know, for both of them for almost their entire careers. I, I like interacting with them directly, but they've never had the opportunities, partially I think because of how they play, to sh show that off the court. Like even the Cliff Paul commercials with Chris Paul, especially the more recent ones, they turn a little bit dark, you know, like they, they don't always necessarily go in that direction. And Harden, it feeds this narrative that so it, it goes in. And I, I, I'm a little bit surprised that their management hasn't really focused on that. I think they're both reasonably funny guys. I think Paul is very insightful. He gave maybe my favorite, one of my favorite answers I've ever heard a player give. If you want, I can actually tell that story, but I don't have to. But yeah, I, I just think that they're, that again, that all it all fits with the narrative with them, and it hurts them in a very meaningful way. For sure, and so maybe now we're saying that they deserve to be in the best overall player conversation 
more than they deserve to be, or they're more, they need to be taken more seriously in that conversation than the other one. And that's the, and that's the conclusion. Actually, I think that they would be fine with that as people, you know, like if yeah. you're James Harden, would you rather be considered as the best overall player or the MVP? I mean, I think they'd probably, probably rather have the best overall player, you know? Yeah, especially when it doesn't affect their bottom line in terms of a paycheck or anything like that. It's not like either one of them is underpaid. I mean, it's underpaid beyond the structural reasons that they're all underpaid. Correct. So, okay, so we've already talked about the top-end teams, and we don't need to, you know, go through piece by piece if you don't want to, but just the teams that you expect, other than the ones that we've already discussed, to be in the playoff mix for their respective conferences. Well, you know, it's always such a depressing slog in the Eastern Conference that I almost want to take like a moral stand against talking about the playoff bubble in the East because it's such a low standard. I just get so worked up. You can do that if you want. In the, in the West have to be excluded because of those teams. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, we spent all this time. Like, can Indiana make the playoffs last year, you know, down the stretch? And I was like, was there a more relevant thing? Like, whoever was going to be uh, in those top spots was getting dismissed quickly by teams that actually mattered. And even by the time we got to Eastern Conference Finals, uh, I personally felt like the Hawks just didn't belong. I mean, what they, I mean, clearly they had bad luck with the injuries and they were kind of falling apart and so on and so forth. But I just don't think there was any conversation last year where by the time we got to the conference final stage, the Hawks were one of the best four teams. And I think the only reason why they were there was a broken structure. And so that's really frustrating to me. Uh, the Western bubble, I think, is more interesting. I guess I'll just throw out some quick thoughts. I mean, I think Dallas is not going to be in this conversation at all. I think this is going to be the first time, you know, first full season of Mark Cuban's tenure where they're below 500. Uh, I think it could get really ugly really quick for them. And I think that they have to be seen as kind of a stealth tank team where if things do start to go wrong early or they just don't have it right early, where they just kind of basically punt the season. So that's maybe one of my hotter takes. I don't know how, how many people agree with that, but I just look at their roster rotation. Like Even with all the matches that Carlisle brings to the table, like they just don't really have the, the horses. I think Utah, to me, is going to be in. Uh, I think Denver will be out. I think Phoenix will be out. Uh, if there's any team that I don't quite know what to make of in the West, it might be Phoenix. I think New Orleans will be in. I think Minnesota and the Lakers obviously both out. Uh, I think the Blazers out. Uh, so I'm not sure who else that leaves. But uh, to me, the middle tier in the West, you know, I mean, you've got to put a team like you know, Memphis. I think I put them behind the six that we mentioned earlier. And then I think Utah maybe will get that last spot. I think in the West right now, it's actually pretty clear who the eight best teams are. Of course, that will be um, that will be adjusted based on injury. You know, at least one of those eight teams will be sidetracked by injury, and that will mean that somebody else will get into the mix. But when you're talking about it at this point, we can't predict which team is going to have an injury. So, other than the ones that we already know about, which would be New Orleans, I think of that group. But to me, the eight, it's the Warriors, the Clippers, the Rockets, the Spurs, and the Thunder, so those five, Memphis, New Orleans, and Utah. I think those teams are meaningfully better. The only team we didn't talk about is Sacramento, but regardless of the temperature of your take on Dallas, I completely agree with you, because what makes them unusual, particularly among Dallas teams, but among any team, is that they are injury-prone at the top, and they're shallow. So what that means is that if somebody is hurt, and that 
if is really not even an if at this point because we already know Wesley Matthews is, is dealing with some stuff. Chandler Parsons is dealing with some stuff, you know, and the other players on their team are precarious, you know, they're for obvious reasons, that they are not well suited to handling those absences. And I think that the path for them to beat teams is narrow and it becomes really narrow really quickly when any single one of those is out, much less two. And so like you think about it, let's say Darren Williams, who they got basically out of luck by him getting bought out, if he misses time, are they going to be able to beat teams with Berea and Devin Harris and the husk of Raymond Felton? I, I, I don't think I don't think they're going to be able to do that, especially if Dirk isn't Dirk. I mean, Dirk was the probably the third best player on Germany in Eurobasket. Like he he could bring it. I want to. I love Dirk. I want to see him do well. But I think that there is a very meaningful chance that they are that they at the halfway point of the season they see the possibility, not the likelihood, but the possibility of retaining their pick, which is the the elephant in the room here. If what we're saying is right, is that their pick is top seven protected. It goes to Boston otherwise to complete the illustrious Rajon Rondo trade, and that is a huge deal for them. You know, if if they can get that piece and hit on that pick, then that becomes the centerpiece of the next great Mavericks team. If they lose that pick, it's going to be so hard for them to get better because. A lot of their guys are going to be free agents, but they haven't pulled guys. So I think that they are a team that would see the writing on the wall if it were close enough and move in that direction. Well, yeah, and when you're framing it like that, I would say this. Would you rather have that pick, or would you rather have whatever the best-case scenario is where you lose that pick? Like, what's the possible best-case scenario? Would that be seed, or like maybe it's one of those things where like the 7th and 8th are really close to the 7th seed? I mean, it's going to be very similar to last year. You know, they're out very quickly. I mean, this is like we're projecting a huge bounce back for Peter, like a career year for Darren Williams. Matthews is healthy right off the bat. He's contributing. Like, I, I just don't even think that their best-case scenario with everybody healthy and no injury issues whatsoever along the way, I still don't see their ceiling being very high. So I don't know if there is a best-case scenario for them that's better than keeping their pick. And so if that's the case, then I'd be, you know, <laughs> I'd be playing those bench guys a lot. I'd be trying to keep the minutes off Dirk. You know, I'd, I'd be doing all the kinds of things that teams do when they know they're not going to be very good. And Dirk has a player option for next year. We very rarely see see guys leave money on the table. I don't think this is going to be his last year. So I think there is a certainly a, th- a case to make for that. And based on the way that their team is built, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that they will be better next year than they are this year. So that makes optimism easier to swallow, you know, whether you're a fan or whether you're a player on the team. And, you know, uh, they have they do have a lot of guys that are going to be f- uh, possible free agents. Chandler Parsons has an option. Darren Williams has an option. So I think that, I think that they can do that I- and not sabotage it. Also, they have, you know, James Anderson, whatever the heck they're going to do at center. You know, they, they can go in that direction. The downside for them in that way is that I don't think they can make trades that will kind of facilitate it. Like, the, the prototype for that for me is the Warriors, the year that the Warriors made the Andrew Bogut trade, which was an unbelievably great trade for them, but also facilitated one of the most egregious tanks in modern history. And I don't think that Dallas has any move in them that works for that. You know, like, I guess if they decided to dump Zaza Pachulia, then they would be playing JaVale McGee and other question marks at center. But 
they don't really have that capability because so many of their guys are going to be free agents that they don't really have value. So that hurts it a little bit. But And they have Rick Carlisle, who is, I think, one of the five best coaches in the league. But when you get so much writing on the wall, I think any competent team, and I fully believe that the Mavericks are that in every way, shape, or form, every competent team is going to see that and go, the incentives are too strong. Why would we do this? I think their ceiling, you were talking about that, I think their ceiling is a six-game first-round exit. You know, that's fine. And there, there's, no, there's no shame in that. They missed on DeAndre. If they had gotten him, this conversation would be very different. They didn't. Too bad, so sad. That's the way it works out. For sure. Hey, let's uh, switch gears to Sacramento. Are we putting Sacramento at the number nine team in the West? It kind of almost feels, uh, it feels scary after their history. But I, when we just did the process of elimination, I was going through Denver, Minnesota, Portland, and all these other teams. I guess it could be Sacramento or Dallas. Let's say Dallas thinks. I mean, is Sacramento that team? I have them 10th behind Phoenix. I think Phoenix is, okay. is, is there. But Sacramento, I, I, I think people are, you know, I've been a very, I'm not a very well-known critic because not, not, not that many people know me, but I've been a very vocal critic of what they've done this summer. But I think there's a distinct chance that they're in that, they're in that mix because they have a lot of talent. They have a top 10 player in DeMarcus Cousins. And unlike last year where they were starting Ray McCallum for stretches and things like that, they should, depending on health, be able to play competent players at most positions almost the whole time. And that is, it's not half the battle, but it's pretty close to that, even in the West. Because if you're just, basically, if you're just giving yourself a shot in every game, you're going to win some of them, especially if you can win at home. For sure. So here's, uh, I know I talked about this earlier with the offline. So we had an NBA scout who anonymously sort of, goes over these teams and kind of with a fine tooth comb with us and presents different questions and, you know, kind of makes predictions and we put it in the magazine uh, every year. It's called, like, Behind Enemy Lines. So his main question with Sacramento was basically whether they realize that Darren Collison is absolutely must be one of their five sort of most important lineup guys, whether they realize that it should be Collison, Cousins, Rudy Gay at the four, and then whatever two shooters emerge, probably Macklemore and Bellinelli. Basically, he was convinced that if they play those five guys big minutes, uh, either starting or closing games, that they're going to do pretty well and be expectations just based on the way those pieces fit together and how Collison fits with George Carl's, you know, kind of preferred style. And that their whole season, you know, basically boils down to can they convince Rondo to not start, you know, based with this sort of legal questions and, and so forth, or do they have to spot start him to kind of work around them and then just close with calls anyways? Uh, but he's pretty convinced that, that Rondo is like the X factor for the whole season. That like he can has the potential to just tear the whole thing down, or if he can get it out of the way, this could be a team that that's you know something to consider on that playoff bubble. That is an interesting way of thinking about it. What actually helps the Kings in a crazy way is that Rondo signed a shorter-term deal. They don't have to be invested in him, and they have a coach in George Carl who I think is trying to prove himself and is at this point in his career and his life, I think that he's he, he's thinking more in that short term, which I think helps the Kings because if Rondo doesn't help them win, I think that he will he will have the authority and he will have the desire to make that change. And... I believe that if that if what what the scout is saying, and I believe it too, that 
Rondo's horrendous lack of spacing and the fact that his defensive ability has just disappeared since his injury. You know, like some of that was always an effort thing for him and he hasn't really had that incentive except for, you know, becoming a free agent at the end of last season. But it isn't clear to me anymore why he is an important part of a successful team. And that's also why I thought the trade, the signing was, was a bad one. But I think that the, the, by getting him on such a short deal where he basically, you know, that he has no, there's no incentive for the Kings other than just having a good player for him to do super well. So you, they don't have to, you know, they're not trying to build his trade value. He's an expiring player. So I think that's more likely than not. The big problem that they have with Rudy Gay at the four is they don't have enough swingmen. It's the same issue with the Knicks having Melo at the four, which is his natural position, because they don't have the players to backfill if you slide them over. Yeah, for sure. I and mean, they got a really weird roster. And so I think that was you know part of the conversation with Scout and just my own thinking with the gig. Like, you know, can you construct a five-man lineup that works? Like, yeah, but... Is one five-man lineup enough to carry you to the playoffs in the Western Conference? And I pretty strongly don't think it is. I mean, the only team that really tried to do that and succeeded that I can remember was sort of the Blazers a couple of years ago where they had you know their starting lineup with Austin and every bench player they had was terrible. They just could never find a fit behind it. I, I just don't think that this, uh, Sacramento's starting lineup has the same ceiling, the same fit, and the cohesion, and the you know, kind of the proven players that the, the Portland team did. You know, I guess... Yeah, you know, some other teams have tried to do the real, you know, five-man and just forget everybody else approach. I just don't love Sacramento's top five. I mean, I think there's questions if you do use Gay at the four. I think it's probably better to use him that way than any other way, but it's not perfect. Uh, and then their their wings, you know, I think both their wings are kind of questions in the fit. I mean, I think Bellinelli, to me, is one of their X factors. Like, if they could figure a way to keep the ball moving and keep him active and get him good shots, and, you know, now he's really spacing the court for them, that could be great. I could also see him just totally dissolving and, and not being much of an impact guy at all because they, you know, they, they pound the ball, Rondo pounds the ball, or they, uh, they can't generate the pace that they want, and then all of a sudden he's just sort of not helping as, as much as he should. <clears throat> so I think this team really could go a lot of different ways. Uh, I do tend to believe that Carlson should be the guy there. Again, I don't know how hot of a take that is, but yeah, I'm with you. The question's about Rondo's shooting. I mean, to me, the, the way that Sacramento can maximize its current roster is to create as much space around Cousins as possible so that he can get as many uh, one-on-one opportunities in the post where he's able to get to the foul line or get really high percentage looks. And so I think that means just four-out offense around them, uh, and the best shooter they've got at the point guard position is Collison. Uh, and so to me, that's pretty much a no-brainer. Agreed. Kings fans are already mad enough at me, so I feel comfortable asking this question. How much of what <laughs> ails them would have been helped by just drafting Moutier? Yeah, I've, I've heard you make that argument. I mean, to me, big picture, long term, I would have done it. You know, and I definitely would not have been in a position where, like, I didn't feel like I had enough information to make that call. I mean, that is just such poor management. You know, it's just bottom of the barrel, like, just basic incompetence. Uh, and there's no way around it. Like, if you have that pick and you have the potential to be trading up or down from that spot, you need to be having, you know, first-hand intel on every single person, and you have to be feeling comfortable completely in your evaluation of every single person. That's just the basics of the job. Uh, and so to me, that's just, you know, you have to, they just have to take that loss. The diehard Kings management, Kings ownership, they just have to take the loss on that one. Uh, 
There's just no way around it. Uh, but to me, you know, big picture, I absolutely would love the idea of like a Boudier cousin uh, combination for the next five to eight years. I mean, no question. I think for this year, uh, I think Carlson, you know, not to be his number one, you know, stand, but I'm not sure the difference between, you know, like just this next season and Carlson to Moody. I think, you know, Carlson has a chance to, to have them be, you know, a better team, uh, than with Moody. And I think yeah, long term, there's really no question. And, and like Rondo, like you're saying, was not a long term answer. And I don't think he's a very good short term one either. So that whole signing just made no sense to me. And really the pick with, with Colleague Stein and then going out to, you know, to sign Kufus as the backup. So that was another thing that Scout raised, which was a, a hotter take, which was that he felt the Kings offseason's moves were hedging sort of a preparate, you know, pre- uh, preparatory hedge against the Cousins trade next summer and that he was pretty confident that Cousins would make it through the trade deadline, but that also even more confident that he would be gone next summer because they now have a potential George Carl starting center in Kufus and, you know, a guy in college Stein who's probably a five at the NBA level, you don't need three of those guys. And Cousins is the piece uh, who potentially wants out. You know, there's rumors about that. Who knows? But that's more speculative. Uh, I mean, could you see – did you take their offseason as sort of heading in that direction, or did you just think it was this crazy conglomeration of moves that didn't make a ton of sense together? I think that there is a theory of their offseason that that fits in with. The way that I phrased it is they did their whole offseason, other than the Caspi signing, as as if they didn't have DeMarcus Cousins. You know, like that was the way I thought about it. You could also think about it as a post-DeMarcus Cousins thing. I, I don't think that they necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. I think that they might have considered that as a, possi- as a possibility. The problem with it is that, well, the idea of it being a trade as opposed to preparing for him possibly leaving eventually is that Kufos is a free agent the same year, so that that part of it is is not really in their favor. But if you're talking about the the, the idea of trading him, yeah, I, I guess that I think that it's actually vaguely responsible if you think there is a possibility of doing that to augment yourself if those are the players that are willing to take your money because I think that necessity was the mother of invention for them. They threw their money at lots of people, and they wouldn't take it. Wes Matthews, I I think they tried to get Damari Carroll. They, basically, they tried to get everybody. They gave up all those draft picks to spend their money stupidly. But they, I think that it kind of was both. They got the best players that they could get, and those players happened to make sense with theories. And part of what makes people like us, I think, go work in this system is... We try to ascribe a motive to it, and a lot of times there isn't one. You know, you think about what kind of... The way that I would describe this is with the team we just talked about, and that's Dallas. What Dallas did with Wes Matthews and J.J. Barea was understandable from that kind of sense of desperation and confidence that they were going to get DeAndre Jordan, considering he told them he was going to go there. But... They kind of, they basically sabotaged themselves for even if it was a 5% chance that he wasn't going to stay. But they, they ended, and so they kind of ended up going all in out of desperation. So you can call that a lot of different things, but it was really just the way that it turned out. And I don't, I think that ascribing too much direct motive to it is kind of, it might be a little bit strong, but I'm not willing to write it off because 
I, I think that the, when you when you think of a team signing two centers when their best player is a top 10 center, top 10 in the league's player who is a center, then you kind of have to at least have that thought cross your mind. Yeah, for sure. Well, so on this topic of trade guys or sort of bigger name trade guys, here's another hot take from Scott. Tell me what you think of this. Eric Bledsoe will be gone by the deadline. I definitely think there's a chance of that, but I don't know what the market is for him. That would be another example, probably, <laughs> of the Suns of the Suns selling low on an asset. I mean, the the all timer with that was what they did with the Lakers pick. They basically did that to overpay Brandon Knight, and while Brandon Knight's a fine player, the way that they did that was weird. But yeah, I mean, I like Eric Bledsoe. But what you have to think about with him and with all of these guys, with DeMarcus Cousins and everything else is, there are two basic questions that you have to ask. One is, if they were willing to trade this guy, what would they want? And who has a package, whether it fits that general guideline or not, that is good enough that they would consider accepting it? So... I, you, you talk about a team like Boston. So what Boston has is a lot of middle-tier assets, it, it, especially if Dallas either keeps their pick or is better than we think. You know, like may, there is a possibility that you know that the Nets fall off the table and a couple other things. But for the most part, Boston is you know it's more like trading five quarters for a dollar. In basketball, you shouldn't do that, but you know sometimes it happens. If a team wants that, you know, those kinds of offers will be on the table from a team like Boston. But for Bledsoe, there aren't that many teams that are sitting there as good of a player as he is that are, that are A, confident enough that he can run their offense, you know, and be that, be the linchpin, and two, have the assets and are willing to give them up for a point guard. Yeah, so let me just uh, lay out his reasons why I think Bledsoe might be a trade guy, and then we can kind of hop into, like, some of the rest of it, but so his theory was okay. So they just paid Knight, so they have to. Knight has to be, you know, in his own view, he's going to be the point guard, right? The scout wasn't convinced that Bledsoe uh, is willing to play off the ball for any meaningful amount of the game. So there's an underlying tension between does Knight and Bledsoe work on offense? Can you keep both of them happy? You know, point two was Phoenix trades everybody, <laughs> so they don't properly value how much their players are worth in their current setup. Uh, and I think you kind of alluded to that when you said, you know, selling low on guys. Um, so he thought, you know, now you have this cycle. At some point, that cycle kind of turns players who are who are there off, and now all of a sudden they're going to management and saying, hey, we want out. Uh, so that's, you know, again, more speculation on his part, but the idea that, you know, Bledsoe might look at this revolving door around him and think, there's got to be a better way than this. Uh, I think his other point was just that, you know, Bledsoe would command a pretty good value on the market given, you know, his defensive ability, uh, his motor, uh, and then also the fact that, you know, people think that Bledsoe's a lot younger than he really is. You know, Bledsoe's like, you know, he's 25 now. Like, he's not the prospect that he was coming out of uh, Kentucky, super young and all that. I mean, he's kind of a finished product. He's a plug-and-play guy. He, he makes you better if you add him in a trade, uh, and so that should generate a market for him. Uh, and then the last point that they made was just that Phoenix's management seems basically obsessed with the idea of future assets, and they don't have the, the ceiling currently to sell to their fans. So once it comes time to you know get to the deadline and they're having the same season they've had the last three times in a row, 
or however many times it's been where they've kind of been stuck in the middle, and maybe just the last two seasons, uh, the, the thinking would go, well, we need to do something to kind of win the press conference or we need to do something to kind of keep fans invested. So we'll make a trade that gets us some splashy draft pick and, and maybe a new face. We'll just decide that Bledsoe wasn't the guy to take us over the top, so we'll just kind of keep preaching hope again like they have these last couple of years with their moves and just kind of hope that that gets people back on board. This is all a pretty pessimistic take, by the way, I think, you know, in general. But there's some of these things I kind of agree with a little bit to a certain degree uh, you know, based on just the overall vision of some of the moves that they've made and how unhappy, uh, you know, a guy like Marquise spent and some of the off-court stuff that they've had with guys like Pete Tucker. And I don't feel like Phoenix quite gets its due for being maybe as dysfunctional uh, as it actually is. And I think part of that is just because they're in the same division with the Lakers and the Kings where it's like, okay, they've got the market cornered on dysfunction. Everybody's, like, going over there talking about that. And Phoenix is, like, the younger brother who's, like, getting away with doing all these bad things that nobody's noticing. I don't know. I think it's kind of a compelling case for why he would be out there. And I think, like, I definitely think he could be a, a difference maker for a team, especially in the Eastern Conference, but, you know, in a lot of different situations where if you add that guy, uh, he could really be a, a big-time, you know, mid-season addition. I agree with a lot of that. Um, I'll give you two teams, one that is still possible, one that isn't, that will surprise people. I hadn't thought about this. We hadn't talked about this at all. The first one is Toronto. I think Masai is closer to radically changing their team than people think. And what makes Phoenix different, and I think it was a mistake, is that they have been more willing to take on guys that are going to be free agents. Like, you think about what they did with Brandon Knight. They took a pretty clear asset and turned it into a guy who, while a good player, was they were about to spend money on him. So Toronto has DeMar DeRozan, who has a player option after this year. They have Terrence Ross. You know, they could do something, you know, even if Kyle Lowry, if they wanted to do it. I think that Bledsoe is, you know, I could see something around that. And also they have, they have plenty of picks. And to tie it in with something we just talked about, if Sacramento hadn't made the trade with Philly this summer, they would have been an insanely logical Eric Bledsoe destination. Totally. Yeah, but, I mean, but, absolutely. And, and But those teams have not only made a recent deal, so, you know, some teams are, are hesitant to make a trade within their division. They did the Isaiah Thomas trade less, less than a year and a half ago, and I think they will be willing to do that again for the right thing. And I, I think Phoenix would like to get, you know, I think that they would be happy to trade him. The way that I think about it, it's kind of, it's in a way what Phoenix has done is made me reevaluate some of my own takes. Like if I ever were lucky enough to get a GM job, I had always kind of thought that part of it is, you know, you have to have the mentality that any, we have to have everybody on the table because any good deal, any deal that makes us better is, is a good thing. You know, if, if, if it's an obvious sell, but what, if it's an obviously better deal, but I think what they've done is, They've gone a little bit more down the what I call the video game path, which is the if it has a 51% chance of being better, well, we might as well do it. It makes us better. And that gets really perilous when you're dealing with human beings with human emotions. And the most obvious one of those, which I think is an all-timer in terms of crazy decisions, just in terms of the rationale, was the Marcus Morris trade. Because they were never getting a Marcus Aldridge. That just was not happening. I, 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 I will believe for the rest of my life that there was none chance he was going to go there. And not none, but let's say 5% or less. And what they did was they cleared space that they didn't end up really using. 
and in the process alienated one of their best players for very little return. And that's the type of thing that you do when you're thinking kind of in too narrow a focus and you're missing, I wouldn't say it's even missing the forest for the trees, but it's the type of thing you do when you don't have somebody you're going, wait a second, let's think about this. Totally. And, uh, yeah, there's just a little too much hinky, like he's a little hinky vibe to that front office where it's not the full on hinky, but he's just got a little too much of that, uh, where you're, you're not treating people as human beings. You're not taking into account the idea of emotion. You're just assuming that everything will work out in the end. And I think in some situations you can get away with that. But when you're Phoenix and you haven't won a lot, especially in the, the post Nash era, you're not, you're not a horrible market. I mean, you've got the, you know, some things going for you, but you're not a prestige premium player that everyone's trying to get to. You don't have a lot of talent to waste. You're not overflowing with options and opportunities. You're not competing for A-list free agents like you mentioned with uh, the Marcus and, you know, even getting Tyson Chandler. I thought that was a big coup for them. I mean, I was kind of surprised that he planted. So it just kind of worked out that he needed a new home and he was ready to move. So, yeah, I mean, I think for all of those reasons, teams in that situation should be taking into account uh, more than just the trade in the vacuum. You've got to be kind of doing everything together. I mean, you can go back to Gore and how they handled that situation. I mean, that seems like a, a total botched job on the, on the behalf of management. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of questions. This is what I mean about them not quite getting enough criticism for uh, what they've done. It's like if you could just kind of stay average or slightly below average and not be terrible – They'll fly under the radar of all the critics. Uh, but to me, they deserve maybe a little bit more criticism than they get nationally just for how things have played out these last couple of years. But, you know, once again, they're going to be that team that's in position. If anybody else falls, uh, maybe they can sneak into the playoffs. And for them, that might be good enough. I'm not sure, based on how much talent they have had over these last couple of years, if that's a reasonable feeling, if they could have redone history and done it the way they wanted to. I think maybe they could have had a better team, but... Uh, that's where they're stuck, and I think that's why a guy like Bledsoe, uh, you know, if I was a rival GM, it might make some sense to call him. Oh, yeah, they should definitely call. And Chandler, I think, was a perfect storm that represents exactly why Phoenix is in a tough spot, because they did get him, but he turns 33 today, happy birthday, Tyson Chandler, and they paid him a lot of money. And so you can get guys like that, but that's why it's hard for max players, because you don't have any of those competitive advantages. You can't pay... Marcus Aldridge more than the Spurs are going to pay if they're going to clear the money. So you're giving them a choice between a better team. Maybe players like Phoenix. Phoenix is a city that has a good reputation, but it's not. They're not in that good city vibe that even let's say Miami is. You know, like I think if Phoenix and Miami had the same team and the same money, players would choose Miami. That's my read on it. I think I'm right, but you know, do that read. And so that is Phoenix's trouble: is they're just good enough to get in the room, but not good enough to get the guy. And that's fine, you know, and, and what you have to do with that is you have to work with it. And you hope, maybe you hope that the next Dwight Howard cares more about your team, but that requires you actually building a team. And in today's era, players are so much more cognizant of what a team has been doing. And I think that players, especially, you know, that they've done, that they've done so much churn that guys who are at the high end will just sit there and go, well, what if they churn me? What if they churn all the guys around me? Like, how much can I trust that the players that I'm committing to join right now are going to be there long term? And that's really hard. And you talked about, you, ta you made the, the reference to Hinky. I firmly believe that Hinky is emotionally intelligent enough to not do that type of thing when his team is actually good. 
You know, when you're at the point where he is now, if you're going to be hot garbage on the floor, you might as well churn. You know, you might as well do that because you're not losing anything other than some reputation, which will, as you and I have talked about and other people, is that that will immediately turn around once they win. You know, like they're in a they're in a situation like that. They're not a playoff contender, so they can do that. I believe that once the Sixers, you know, once they reach that critical mass of not being terrible, that they won't do that anymore. I think that's a fair argument. I mean, Hickey's moves make sense in his current situation. If I had to choose between one of those two situations, I think you could make an argument that you prefer to be Philadelphia just because you've got a cleaner slate, uh, you've got some, you know, core pieces that could make sense together. Uh, you've got, you know, a pretty nice stash of assets that, you know, aren't like 2020 first round picks, like, you know, they're going to be waiting on with Boren at trade. But he's going to have to show the ability to adjust, you know, and they are going to have to turn the corner at some point before we could just kind of grant them this magical ability of like, yes, we think they're going to be able to handle this dif- uh, differently. Two, I think Kiki would have done all the same things that he's done in Philadelphia if he was in charge of Phoenix. I'm not so sure. I think the potential for him to have just like torn that whole thing down immediately and got, you know, basically got rid of everything and tried to start over uh, would have been higher. So maybe they wouldn't be stuck kind of, you know, maybe Phoenix wouldn't be stuck quite where they are, uh, you know, in kind of no man's land, which is kind of how it feels like at this point. Uh, but I, I just don't ever see Hinky being in a situation where his quote unquote core uh, of his best players is an aging center a power forward who's angry at the world, especially at the front office, and two guards who both need the ball uh, are on similar contracts, so there's not really a clear pecking order, uh, and neither one of them is really, like, top five at their position. You know, I don't ever see Hinky assembling uh, a franchise where that's the core that you're trying to bank on to win basketball games. Oh, and by the way, try to win with that group. Uh, I don't ever see that happen. Agreed. And also, I was just thinking about, we were talking about the churn and everything, that Two teams sold low. Two teams with management that we've heavily criticized during this podcast both sold sold low on Isaiah Thomas, and both could use a player like Isaiah Thomas right now. Oh, for sure. And uh, and neither one of the moves made sense at the time. And both were criticized. You know, so either like there's stuff behind the scenes with Isaiah that's just not getting out, where he's just the worst locker room player in the world, which I would doubt. Uh, or you know, you've got two bad front offices making bad decisions. I think yeah. those are your kind of your choices, and I think I know which one of those I lean towards. I can guess which one you lean towards. <laughs> yeah, I lean, I lean towards that. I'm a little bit I, – I understand why I, – I was supportive of the Suns doing what they were going to do, but what was so jarring to me was that they made the Dragic move, which I think, given what ended up happening, was the right move. You know, they got a ton for him, and he was going to leave anyway. Why did they trade Thomas then? I, 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 I yeah, think... it was it was it was one trade too many. That's what I felt at the time. That's what I wrote at the time. Like, yeah, you and now they have no point guard depth. I mean, like, really, especially like, if they're going to consider moving Bledsoe. Like, if they're yeah. they're they're they put themselves in a situation where it's like you know you they never reach the equilibrium, and you it's hard when you never give yourself a chance at that. And not only you have that issue, but. Like, you know, they, they had the weird stuff, like they drafted, they had used a first-round pick on Tyler Ennis. There was some speculation that they did it to try to ransom something out of the Raptors. And then they included him as a throw-in in a deal <laughs> when I don't think he would have started for them. But, you know, like, right now, assuming that you that they're going to play Knight and Bledsoe together, their backup point guard is Ronnie Price. Like, this, this is... I know, that's what I was... Uh, I was just going to say the same thing. Like, this is a team that had Gore and Isaiah... Brandon Knight, 
in recent years. Eric Bledsoe, Tyler Ennis, they drafted Kendall Marshall with a lottery pick, and their backup point guard is going to be freaking Ronnie Frank. Exactly. Uh, any other scout things you want to do, or I have another question that I want to go through? No, no, let's do that. That is an absolute train wreck, and it's totally gone under the radar. People have not really called that out too much, and I'm glad that... Well, uh, and there's the Hornacek part of it, too. <laughs> like, we didn't even talk yeah, about the yeah. fact that they have a great coach who is apparently, by the reporting that's out there, in- insanely underpaid. And he is he is he a f- coaching free agent after this year? I believe that they've got like a, I believe they've got like a, this is the last guaranteed year of his contract. So I don't know if maybe they have a team option on the last year or whatever, but he's basically in a lame duck situation. And, you know, everyone's sort of like, what are you thinking? Why aren't you uh, extending this guy? Maybe they're just negotiating in public and it will, they'll figure it out. But yeah, to me, when I look at the list of assets for their organization, Hornacek is like right at the top. You know, I mean, he's, the way he came in immediately established the, uh, you know, established the tone right off the bat, got a real clear style, played for them, overachieved, and then rolled with all these punches that the front office is throwing at him and, and still put a competitive product on the court. I mean, to me, that's a no-brainer. Uh, you you got to take care of him. Okay, so we'll move on to the kind of the last question, which is a kind of a, a broad scoping thing, but the question that you most want to have answered this season. So like a question about the league or a team or something else that you're, that you think can be answered this year. The question that I'm hoping will be answered this year is exactly how good is Kevin Love? And it's a weird question to ask at this stage of his career, because he's been around and we've seen him do it. He's a proven guy. We know what he can do as a player. Uh, We know the kind of impact he can have on a bad team. We know what kind of impact he can have somewhat in a supporting role on a really good team. But his injury to me during the postseason was maybe the most disappointing from like an intellectual standpoint, just because we didn't get to see, one, how he would handle the increasing amount of pressure in the postseason, two, how he would adjust you know, with and without Kyrie when, when Kyrie was dealing with things and, and how much he would, how flexible he would be in increasing his role. Or number three, big picture, we didn't get to see how great Cleveland's offense could be in the postseason when it wasn't just the LeBron show. And then number four, we didn't get to see if he could stay on the court defensively when you're going against a team like Golden State and how those matchups would play out. So to me, for a guy that we, you know, have granted, you know, multiple all-star appearances and certainly he's earned them. Uh, we've kept him in the All-NBA conversation. He's been a guy in the past who's been a top-ten player. He's still like this really big kind of weird question mark in my mind about what he could really do when all the chips are on the table and when we're kind of, you know, granting Cleveland all the way to the finals uh, in the Eastern Conference. So I think if there's one single question I'd like to have answered by the end of the season is how good is Kevin Love? How much can he contribute to a winning team on both ends of the court? Can you keep him on the court once – you know, teams start playing the match at the game in the playoffs. Uh, and then could he be a, a plus player when he's, uh, you know, in those situations? Uh, those are the, that's sort of the question that I have that I would love to have answered this season because it's just kind of been a nagging one, largely due to injuries over the last couple of years. I've never felt like I totally understand where Kevin Love falls on the NBA's best player pecking order. Uh, and I'd like to have that answer. That is a great question, and one thing I will add to it, the only thing I'll add to it is that I still want to see a lineup with Love at center and LeBron at power forward. Yes, it will be immensely flawed defensively, 
but it would be, I think, has the potential to be truly special offensively, especially when Kyrie is healthy. So, like, let's say, hypothetically, Kyrie, Shumpert, J.R. Smith, LeBron, Love. Like, that lineup is the type of thing that I think could... Because Tristan just kill, hurts the spacing. It's basically, he's a, he's the center in that lineup. So, I think if you could just see how that works, and you see basically to see what Kevin Love could do in the Chris Bosh role, is, I guess, the best way to put it. Uh, at the uh, the one that I'll say for the for this podcast is, will Utah be able to succeed for stretches without a traditional primary ball handler? I use that instead of point guard because teams always have to have a point guard on the floor because somebody guards them. But will they be able to roll a lineup that does not include, let's say, Trey Burke or Bryce Cotton or whoever else they have there, and succeed? Because this is one of the best defensive teams in the league, and if they can do it then that would be really exciting to me as an, as a basketball nerd, as an NBA fan, because that opens up doors that teams really haven't considered in the recent past. Yeah, and I buried this down in a call pretty deep in a call I wrote a couple of days ago. But I think a related question to the one that you're asking is, will Dennis Lindsay decide, look, now is the time to really upgrade that position. I mean, it's clearly their weak link. Uh, and he mentioned during his uh, media day press conference that he made reference, specific reference, to how much cap space he has available to uh, bring on salaries and trades. And he in reference to uh, the cash of draft assets that he has, uh, you know, potentially to make a move, a midseason move. And I think if there's one trade where I could say I would like this to have happen, I would love to use on a trade for just a solid point guard, somebody where I don't have to watch Trey Burke. Uh, play as many minutes as he plays or any of the other guys they've kind of accumulated there. Just a real point guard. Doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a top 10 guy. But if they can make a move where they could just address that position so that we don't have to, like, let's just say it doesn't work and they're, what you're laying out, like the zero ball handler, the zero point guard approach kind of falls short of where you would hope it would given the rest of their talent. Because to me, like, you know, Gordon Hayward, I think we had Gordon Hayward, Rudy Gobert, and Derek Favors as all top 50 players for SI. And I think they were one of the few teams to have three in that group. To me, Derek Favors is the most underrated player in the entire NBA for what he does. I understand there's, you know, kind of big questions with what he presents, you know, the way other teams are playing. They got a lot of talent, a lot of really good players on that team. They got a great core. If is now the time, if the, the way that you're talking about doesn't work, can they strike? and really put themselves over the top. I think that's one of the most interesting questions this season, too. And get Eric Bledsoe? Oh, well, that would be the dream scenario. I mean, could you? how good do you think that they could be? I mean, I think they could win a playoff series if they traded for Eric Bledsoe. I think they could win. They'd have the chance to maybe even win more than one, depending on how it worked out. I mean, because... Oh. What what you have to remember with it is I believe they were they're the best or second best defensive team in the league after the trade, and they never had their full team together. You know this they had a lot of weird stuff, and they had a a teenage rookie point guard whose best experience other than FIBA play was high school ball in Australia. And while I'm <laughs> there are very few people who are higher on Dante Exum than me. If you were to tell me that, like, basically to say, hey, we're going to put somebody in that situation, they would fail 99 times out of 100, and the other one would be if they were the reincarnation of Magic Johnson. You know, like, that's just, it's just too big a jump for anybody to make. And the Jazz are in a nice spot because they have a lot of assets, and so, like, if they could make that trade and retain, obviously they would retain Hayward Favors and, and, 
X, Hayward favors and Gobert for sure. Probably Exum and Hood as well. Like if they did it with Burks and Picks, and maybe if there was some salary that the Suns didn't want anymore, you know, do something with that. You could do that. And while I think I would rather see more of a pure, you know, uh, a offensive, you know, Curry would be the archetype, but you know, uh, something more of the offensive generation because I trust their defense anyway. Bledsoe would just be monstrous there. I mean, you would you would be able to do that. And Bledsoe and Gordon Hayward, I think, would work beautifully because they would have the synergy that Dragic and Bledsoe kind of did because, but Hayward would be so much more comfortable taking a back seat. So then you give Bledsoe the idea of, oh, you know, it's your show, but we have this other guy who can do it too. Yeah, I, I mean, as you're laying that out, my mouth is like literally watering. Because, you know, I've been waiting for the Jets for the quarter for a while here. I like their core pieces. and It would be great. I mean, I would love to see that. And I actually think it's one of those scenarios where if you're Utah, I mean, I don't normally advocate for, like, overpaying in a trade, you know. But I think it would be worth it because, again, Bledsoe would be aligned perfectly age-wise with the rest of their core guys, right? I mean, that's a team where if you can keep them together and keep them paid, like, you could really grow for a long time. Like, you have the foundation there that could go, you know, four to eight years. Maybe not eight, but four to six years, right? And so it would make more, way more sense for Bledsoe to be with the supporting pieces in Utah than it does with the other supporting pieces in Phoenix to be. So, you know, from that standpoint, from how he fits and what he could do for their defense, he fills that ball handling need that you were just talking about, you know, with your main question. I think he's got, you know, the right type of personality to kind of fill with these other guys. I think he could play. Uh, you know, Snyder style. And, yeah, so to me, I would actually advocate you on that scenario, like, overpaying. Like, if it takes a couple extra draft picks, like, more than you would think, if it's one of those things where, like, we look at the deal and the immediate trade reaction is like, wow, Utah gave up a lot. Like, I think it would be worth it uh, because that would be not only addressing their biggest weakness, but potentially solidifying a core where you could have major success, not just this season, but going forward the next uh, you know, three, four, or five years in a market where it's really tough to do that. You know, it's not like Utah's winning a bunch of free agents, and that's sort of how they have to to build. Uh, you know, through the draft and through uh, through trades. So to me, it would be one of those things where it's like it's okay to overpay, do it, and, and move forward, and, and bring Exum back the next season, and now you've got really something special. They also could have been in the market for Isaiah Thomas. Like that was another one of those buy low the market. You know what I, I believe what. Phoenix got in that trade was they got um, Minnesota's pick, which is almost definitely going to become a second, and a Cleveland first-round pick that was in the Zeller trade. And I, Utah has the Warriors picks that they could have used with that. They could have you know done something with crazy projection with their own, depending on how they're going to do it. And I I worry that and I worry that they they were so optimistic about their core that they had this quick like instant fear of like, well, what if we build too much too fast? What if we scares XM or something like that? And I think it would have been great for him to have Bledsoe or Thomas or somebody like that. And now that he's, now that he's out sadly for the year, they have that opportunity again. And I want them to like Utah is the team that I think that could be the, like kind of the real trendsetter going more back to an old school thing, because what they do, they can do better than anybody else, and it's really hard to counter unless you go five out, and most teams don't have the personnel to do that. So I'm excited to see if they can pull it off. I'm rooting for it as a basketball nerd, but, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. For sure, no doubt. Anything uh, else you want to discuss? 
Oh, here's one final hot take from uh, Scout, and then we can leave on this note, but I think you'll like it. Uh, he is convinced that the entire Western Conference will come down to Draymond Green versus LaMarcus Aldridge uh, mm-hmm. at the center spot of small lineups, and that whether it's the Western Conference Finals or the second round, whenever they, they meet up, that San Antonio will counter Draymond with LaMarcus. They'll surround him with, you know, Kawhi at the four and three shooters uh, or playmakers, whatever you want to call them, and that it'll be a situation where the transition from Tim Duncan to LaMarcus functionally actually takes place this year because in the most important moments against Golden State, it will be preferable to have Aldridge rather than Duncan on the court, and that Aldridge, because of his overall offensive abilities and his ability to stretch a little bit, could actually be like potentially a Draymond killer, and that Duncan will just be watching all this from the timeline. Huh. I mean, Duncan is such a good player for them, and he is, you know, he is their their defensive identity at this point, despite having the defensive player of the year. I think that Duncan is is that part. There's a possibility. I think Pop would consider it, of course, but I, 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 it's hard for me to think that he could do that. What, you, what are your thoughts on it? Well, first of all, it was like mind blowing because, like, it, when you're asking somebody to think of the Spurs without Duncan, it's like, well, what? You know, it's it's one of those things where like, we were talking earlier about Anthony Davis and, you, and the Pelicans, and like you inverted the two. You know, it's like, oh, they or he, or you know, it's the same thing with Duncan. It's like, well, if Duncan's out there, then they're going to be awesome. If he's not out there, then we have no idea what they would be. To me, I think there's never going to be just that one lineup, right? Uh, but that's the power of Draymond. Like, he is forcing all these teams, even really good teams with perennial all-star first ballot Hall of Famers, to consider every option available and to even to consider moving past options that have worked really, really, really well. I mean, I think I might have said this earlier on your podcast. I've said it a bunch. I and mean, I thought Tim Duncan was the best player in that Clippers first playoff series. You know, I thought he was better than Chris. I thought he was better than Blake. Uh, so now to take a player off the court who was – you know, the best player. And in some cases, I thought that he was almost as good as LeBron in some of the finals recently as well in terms of overall impact. Uh, and you're talking about defensive identity, all those things. So to have that kind of player off the court is so tricky. Uh, but is there a better solution? I mean, if you have him match up against Draymond, does that work? You know, if you're going small and you have Kawhi at the four and you have, all, uh, you have Duncan at the five, is that really your best matchup against Golden State? And I think just because of familiarity's sake, I would lean towards yes, they should play that way uh, and, and keep Duncan. But now you're leaving Aldridge off the court, you know? So is Draymond so good now, he's convincing a team like San Antonio that they have to choose between Aldridge and Duncan. If so, that is just an incredible weapon. And a lot has been said about Draymond over the last, you know, six months. But that might be like the ultimate compliment that you could pay to him. It's like, you're, you're that good that you're forcing a team to choose between uh, a first ballot Hall of Famer and a likely Hall of Famer because you can't play both of them at the same time. Yeah, it is a big compliment. I think that the way that you handle that is you put Duncan on Harrison Barnes and you just say, okay, Harrison, you're going to beat us and we're going to do it with help. But you have to play it. Like, if you're going to do what you, the Spurs need to do against the Warriors, you need to start game planning it now. Like, that's what, what makes it hard is that you have to start thinking about it in this process. And I want to ask you, out of the blue, I think you're going to hate me for this, one question, which is look, in, look a year into the future, 
where what your first instinct on where Kevin what uniform Kevin Durant is putting on at media day a year from now? Ah uh, man, I think my pop out answer would be that it would it would still be a Thunder uniform, and he just pulls a LeBron and goes short term, like a one in one flexibility. Yeah, but I'm not super confident about that. He hasn't thrown out any breadcrumbs yet to suggest that he really wants out. Uh, so he's playing it kind of conservative, I think, close to the vest. And I think he's trying really hard to do right by Oklahoma City. That leads me to believe that he's in one of those situations where he knows he has every option available to him. and He doesn't want to make that decision until he absolutely has to make it. So in other words, I don't think that he's got in his mind, I want to go be a Laker. I want to go be uh, the face of a completely remade Brooklyn Nets team. Or I want to go uh, you know, team up with these guys down in Miami. Like, I don't think he's got that scenario, or even like the Golden State scenario, which I think is the most tantalizing one of all of them, obviously, because they've got the most talent on hand. So I don't think he has that like kind of percolating in his head, maybe like LeBron did uh, during the first decision, you know, where like he realized after talking to, you know, Dwayne and, and Chris well before they were actually free agents, like he always had that in his back pocket, right? Uh, like that was a thing that they could, you know, go to if Cleveland fell short of expectations and things weren't looking good. I don't know if, if Kevin has that. And the way he's sort of presenting himself, maybe he's doing a really good job at his poker face. Uh, I'm not sure he's got that either. I think he is, feels an incredible amount of loyalty to that community, which the people in Oklahoma City really, really, really buy into. And so I think from that standpoint, you know, emotionally, it, it's not quite the level of like LeBron leaving the hometown team, but it's pretty close. Like, the potential to play heartbreaker in that community is LeBron-esque. I mean, it's not quite there, but it's like right below there. And so I think that's going to really pull on him. And I think, again, where if he's weighing his options in one of them, if it's just sort of punt the decision a little bit, I could see that being something that helps him punt it by taking the shorter-term contract. But, you know, I think some of it, too, is like, you know, with the lockout coming, I mean, our guy is going to feel – like the paydays are still going to be there. Is there going to be some grand compromise that has to come with the salaries or is the cash just going to continue shooting up and are they going to be able to get through this, you know, this negotiations without, you know, a major stoppage or without major structural changes? Uh, I think that's going to be, be something that's influencing him as well. You know, I mean, does he have faith that the kinds of payday that he wants is going to continue to be there or does he feel like he has to cash out immediately? Um, like maybe a guy like Kevin Love did. A lot of these are just unanswerable. So I think that, you know, there's so many things around it. I think that Oklahoma City has positioned itself pretty well in terms of being the hometown team. They've certainly made more aggressive moves, and some of them very questionable that could absolutely backfire, just like, you know, Cleveland's moves backfired, you know, once they did lose LeBron. But, you know, nothing yet makes me feel very confident that he's got another team in mind. And so for that reason, I'd still give the incumbent advantage to Oklahoma City. And so if I had to bet on it, I think I'd bet that he would still be in Oklahoma City. But all of that being said, you can sense the hesitancy in my voice. Yeah, I'm not feeling great about it. Uh, and certainly I could see him somewhere else. Uh, do you have a, a team in mind that would be his, uh, you know, his sort of his exit parachute plan? Or is it more just you think you'd get frustrated with uh, a cast of characters that's kind of been patched together here and, you know, look for something new. 
I, I think he has a very real chance of staying in staying in Oklahoma City. What I've been I, I so first of all, I love this situation because we we're gonna learn a lot about Durant. But my instinct is that he's not going to go to any of the super major markets because none of those circumstances are very good right now. The Knicks have Melo, who conflicts in a couple different ways with Durant. The Nets just wouldn't be good with him. They, they, he can't have that much faith. The Lakers are in the same boat. The Clippers don't have space. Then you're starting to compare a little bit closer to apples to apples, and that's where actually I think OKC might be hurt because DC is home. It's a it's a better team, I would say, for the next five years because Oklahoma City, at this point, they're not going to get any better than they are now. And they're great. You know, they're a title contender. Washington isn't. But Washington, if, if we just put Durant on their team, Washington takes OKC's spot in that whole thing. And the other two teams that intrigue me to no end are the Warriors, which you just mentioned, which I think if he's thinking about the process in the way that I would if I were Kevin Durant, that's where I would go. If it were my decision, that's what I would do. And the other one is New Orleans. Because either one of those circumstances, those two in particular, would be insanely fun. And you're doing your legacy making. And you get to, yeah, you don't have the Eastern Conference benefit. And yeah, maybe it hurts you a little bit to do that. But I would be terrified of hitting 32, let's say and having never won a championship and possibly having never made another NBA Finals because that is so much more devastating than saying, oh, he ran and played with somebody else. You know, if we if we were sitting here and we were talking about LeBron James, who's 30 now, will turn 31 this season, and he had never won a title. MVP caliber, one of the one of the LeBron's one of the ten, one of the five best players of all time. Durant, you know, if he stays healthy, he's probably in the 20 at that point and has never won a title, that is so much bigger of a deal, and you didn't have the fun of it. I mean, obviously it's fun if Westbrook and Durant or Westbrook and Ibaka are still there, but I think that those are the situations that if I were an OKC fan, I would be having night sweats about. I wouldn't be having night sweats about the Knicks, but if he, I know he has a good relationship with Stephen Curry. If Stephen Curry or Anthony Davis comes calling in, that I would just, if I were them, I would be terrified of that just eating away at him, like, Oh man, look at how much fun those teams are. They also have great coaches that are really fun. So those are the situations to me that just scream, I would consider it. Yeah, I mean, and I think part of it goes back to like, okay, so is he in a place ego-wise where he's willing to go play on quote-unquote Anthony Davis's team or go play on quote-unquote Stephen Curry's team? And obviously once he gets there, there'll be a shakeout period and may wind up becoming his team. But does, is he willing, sort of big picture legacy, like, just psychologically, is he willing to say, I couldn't do it in Oklahoma City with my team. I want to go join their team. Because that's how these guys really do look at it. And that was one of the biggest surprises I think people had with LeBron is that he was willing to make that, I'm going to go play for Dwayne's team. And, of course, it became his team eventually. And they were kind of able to gloss over that with, like, the joining of the big three. But, you know, that's my biggest question with, like, the Golden State or the New Orleans scenarios is like, would Kevin be willing to admit that defeat in Oklahoma City? Because that's what he would have to do to say he couldn't get it done in Oklahoma City with Russell Westbrook, with Serge Ibaka, and he, he would see these other situations as preferable. That, I, I think from the outside, we could easily make the argument that those situations would be preferable. But I just think inside Kevin said, I'm not sure he would be able to do that because it would be, he would be saying to himself, I couldn't do it. I failed. And that's a real tricky thing. 
that's one reason why of those three teams you mentioned, I would actually say like Washington might uh, be the easiest for him to rationalize because of course there's the going home angle. Uh, but there's also the idea that, you know, John Wall, as great as he is, and Bradley Beal, as, as great as he could become, either one of those guys is an Anthony Davis or a Steph Curry, right? And, you know, John Wall, does he have the potential to ever get to where Curry is right now? I don't think so. You know, could he be in the MVP conversation at some point in his career? I think that's, that's possible. But I don't see him ever being that kind of a force, right? So KD would be not only, like, the hometown hero coming home, but also the clear number one guy, it's his team. Everybody would make room for him. Everyone would agree with that. There wouldn't be any question. So, so psychologically, uh, you hate trying to, you know, play shrink, but I think that would be the big holdup for some of these dream scenarios. And it would be amazing if we got to a situation where a player of Kevin Durant's stature was willing to say, you know what? None of that stuff matters to me. All I really care about is winning a title and having my max contract. Let's go to Golden State and win five in a row. I mean, if we ever got to a place where that would, he would be okay with that, we'd probably have a better NBA on our hands. Yeah, I think we would. And one factor that I think really weighs in favor of a one plus one, except for the risk with his foot and everything else, is he can't win in Oklahoma City if either Westbrook or Ibaka leaves. Straight up, he can't win a title there if either of them leaves. So if he has any doubt, whether that comes from them or it comes from his own instincts, that they're going to stay... I think he can't commit to them long-term. It would just be impractical. Yeah, uh, and it's tricky because you have to wonder, like, how much are those guys hot? You know what I mean? Like, if you're Westbrook, you feel like your future is totally beholden to Kevin Durant right now, right? But if you're Kevin Durant, like, you're arguing very convincingly, he might feel the exact same way about Westbrook. I mean, does either one of who wants to go first, you know? It's like, do you want to commit? Do you want to tell me you're going to be here for sure? Do you want me to tell me you're going to be here for sure? Uh, you know, it's very tricky and pressy. You know, he's earned his paycheck. Let's put it that way. Like he is bouncing a lot there right now. Uh, and that also puts Billy Donovan, you know, in the pressure cooker. I mean, there is no ramp up here whatsoever for Billy Donovan. He does not get the benefit, the normal, like, Hey, let's take it slow. Let's manage expectations. Like that's the big thing that I, uh, look, when I look at Chicago, for example, I think everybody just needs to really pump the brakes for Hoiberg. I think, like, I look at their pieces. I'm not sure that their pieces really fit his preferred style of play. I think there's probably going to need to be some roster turnover to make it work uh, for the Bulls. Uh, and I think there's no way, like, people, you know, love to make the Steve Kerr comparison, you know, because they're both former shooters, Bulls players, uh, NBA guys, you know, really well-liked. You know, he's the mayor. Kerr is, like, the most popular coach. It's a really easy comparison to make. You know, he's coming into a team with, a, you know, a coach who's arguably underachieved, uh, according to the critics. I just don't see those as similar situations, and I think everybody really needs to chill with the Hoiberg stuff and just give him some time, realize it's going to be a multi-year process there in Chicago. Uh, with Billy Donovan, I can't make the same argument. I can't say we should take it really slow and, and let him kind of feel things out because that's just not the, real, the, the reality of their situation. He's got to do it from day one. They have to be awesome starting at the season opener, uh, and they have to be a serious championship contender right now. They have to make the Western Conference Finals this year for the whole thing to blow up. That's a lot of pressure, and I think Billy Donovan's the kind of guy who welcomes that pressure, but that's still a lot of pressure. Yeah, I, it's, that's an excellent point, especially with Hoiberg, but with both of that. And that also gets on something you alluded to, but I think is will be heavily, heavily a part of the post-mortem, wherever this goes, which is, that they put assets into uh, bringing in two guys and Dion Waiters and Ennis Kanter, who, at, even if you have disagreements on how good they are as basketball players, 
that seemed distinctly not fun to play with. And I think that was a, was a weird part of this calculus for Sam Presti and for their management is at a certain point, you don't want to bring in players that frustrate your, that frustrate your best players. And I think that particularly waiters, that's exactly what he does. Waiters had just come from a situation where he played like he thought he was the best player on the court on a team that had LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love. In what universe would you think, hey, let's put that guy on the closest analog to that team, and he'll just become a team player? It was that was insanity. Canner Canner is obviously a talent. You know, there's there's a lot. It's an easier argument to make, though he always will. He's horrendous defensively. He probably will be, but. At its most fundamental, whether you disagree with them as, as uh, on my opinion on them as players, I don't. I can't imagine why it would be fun to play with those guys. Whereas with Westbrook and Ibaka, I can totally see it, and with Harden, I could see it too. Yeah, I could see Canner being a little more fun to play with than you might expect. Just if you are getting to a situation where the offensive system clicks, and now you're just steamrolling teams like they were. Uh, you know, terrible defensively down the stretch last year. Uh, you know, the numbers were just like, just totally ballooned. I think they were like 29th down the stretch of defensive efficiency. Like, that's not fun, especially when you're a disciplined player like Kevin Durant. But if you do get to a situation where you're just like, you're, you're overpowering teams and Tanner's a part of it and the defensive limitations aren't as obvious, I could see that being somewhat fun. I don't think it would be fun in the playoffs when he's blowing assignments and you're working so hard on the other end to get points and now he's costing you points. The waiters thing, you know, I 100% agree. I don't see how he would be fun under any situation, uh, unless he's a nice guy and, you know, his locker room history and the, the stories that come out of Cleveland with him and Kyrie from the previous season don't paint him as a particularly nice, fun guy. And I, I was kind of telling, saying this on a, a Thunder podcast, season preview podcast. You know, when you're going back to, like, who are your top five guys? What's your best lineup? What's your go-to crunch time lineup at the playoffs? I don't see any scenario where waiters can even sniff that with, with them. And so from that standpoint, you got to question how big should his role be at any, at any point of the season? Like, how much do you really want to play him as a priority? I understand you've, you put a pick out there so you feel like you have some obligation to do it. Uh, but to me, when I'm lining up, like, what are their priorities? Uh, who should, you know, where, where should waiters, waiters be on the totem pole? He's way down at the bottom. And ultimately, like, I think his power to do damage when he's on the court compared to uh, you know, whatever average replacement player you want to put out there in that role, and whether it's him or Anthony Morrow, I'd way rather play Anthony Morrow uh, or whoever else it might be on their, you know, their rotation. Uh, you know, I think that keeping him happy should absolutely not be a priority. And if it comes to the point where you have to dump him and just take a loss on that trade and say it didn't work and move him for, you know, next to nothing, I think, that's okay. You know, just swallow hard and do that because, you know, we've seen the addition by subtraction thing work already for Cleveland. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if, you know, he wasn't on the team after the trade deadline and they didn't suffer for it. Yeah, I was, uh, I thought about it because we, uh, Nate Duncan and Dan Feldman, and I did the podcast. That is the hardest extension negotiation I can basically think of. I can't even, I don't even know if it would be possible <laughs> to come within 5 million a year on a number with those two teams. I, I just can't, it's, it seems impossible. Well, and actually, I heard your conversation on that, and to me, I wouldn't make an offer. You know, I wouldn't be a jerk about it, but if I was Oklahoma City, I'd say, you know what, Dion, I want to see how this year plays out. You know, we have championship aspirations. We have to win the title. We're feeling the pressure. You know, 
and we don't view for you as uh, we don't view you yet as a known quantity. We want more intel. Uh, we, we feel like you know if you could have a really really strong year for us, you, know, you could be the different. You could be a key X factor, which he could be. You know, if he turned into this guy everybody wants him to be, where he actually does get to the rim. Uh, he plays defense a little bit. He doesn't pound the ball too much. Uh, and he can hit open shots, which these are so many ifs, you know. Like, it's basically like, hey, Dion, if you cannot be Dion, we'd love you, you know. But, I, of course, you're not going to say it that way. Uh, but, you know, if he has a big year, then, yeah, they're going to want to keep him because if that means, you know, Durant's more likely to stay. Now you've got a, a core team and you're trying to keep it together and, and make another run, right? Sort of like the J.R. Smith situation for Cleveland. But to me, there would there would be no motivation. If I was Oklahoma City, there would be no motivation whatsoever to keep on waiters because I think that's where you're getting into a situation where, like, the only reason you would do that is if you think it's going to make Kevin happy, uh, and then you've got a question like, is this ultimately going to make Kevin happy? And I think you've pointed it to a lot of reasons why it would be frustrating and it wouldn't make him happy long term. Uh, based on his pure skills as a player, to me, there, there'd be no need to try to reach an early extension with him. I'll, I'll throw in a little nugget for the people who are intrepid enough to have listened to this whole podcast and the free agency one, that if it hadn't been role-playing, what I would have offered waiters would have been something like what Kendall Marshall signed with the Sixers. So it would have been, you know, two and a half million and two <laughs> options every other year. But because we weren't doing it that way, that's not the offer that that's not the offer that went on the podcast. But yeah, it's they're just they they're we're, we're going to be in a hard situation no matter what. Like that's just the way it works when guys hit unrestricted free agency for the first time. It's hard. That's just the way it is. But they made it a lot harder on themselves, and that's a you know it could work out. You know the teams have done that before, and it's worked out. I think New Orleans to a point though that wasn't unrestricted free agency. New Orleans did that a little bit with Davis just because they went so short term. But what is scary to them is that if any one of those guys leaves. They're done as contenders because players aren't willing to go there. You know, they haven't been able to get the, what they have been able to do is really, you know, just add other pieces. And when you talked about the idea of Moro in that spot, I would love to see them try Kyle Singler. You know, you'd probably have Durant guarding twos most of the time. And so you wouldn't want to do that against a team that had Harden or, you know, somebody who was actually good. But let's say you're playing the Spurs. I would consider a lineup with Westbrook, Durant, Singler, Abaka and whoever at the five. I think that would be interesting. It would be different. It would kind of negate some of their strengths. But they've used so many assets and have done it on players that didn't that weren't even logical lottery tickets to me. Like they were guys that had talent, but when you you have this unique group of individuals that are so insanely good, I think it's almost impossible to build a bad team around Abaka, Westbrook, and Durant. And you think, okay, th- these are the basic attributes we need for a player. And if we're going to throw all the eggs in one basket as opposed to throwing them in a ton of different baskets, these are the attributes that those people have to have. And they just didn't do that. Correct, yeah. And, and I think I'm totally with you on Singler. So going back to that conversation about like who's their best five, right? When you have the core of Ibaka, Durant, Westbrook. I mean, to me, against certain lineups, uh, Steven Adams and a shooter. And then against other lineups, you take Adams off and you add two shooters. So to me, you know, that would be, you know, or, or and I also think, you know, Roberson might get overlooked a little bit there because he's a pretty darn good defender. Uh, so to me, like, almost in any situation, Roberson, Morrow, and Singler are all above waiters on my personal depth chart for them. You know what I mean? I, I'm just struggling to find any scenario against any of the playoff opponents where I feel like waiters would want to be, would be one of my playing guys for them at any point, And I just don't see it. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. And yeah, Roperson is underrated. The problem with him, he's such an offensive zero right now. But if he can turn that around, this is a young guy. Young guys don't have to stay offensive zeros forever. So if he can turn that around, then he, you know, if he could become their homeless man's Danny Green, that would be huge for them because they don't, that's the one real characteristic that they don't have that even if he's not starting, that is just good to have on your team. Totally. And I think Roberson's defense is better than anything Raiders brings to the table, right? So, like, neither one of the pieces is ideal. And then the same thing with Morrow. Like, I think Morrow is, like, a pretty poor defender, right? So his shooting is better than anything Waiters brings to the table, right? So, like, if you're picking between these, like, unfinished products, uh, which of them would I want to go down? You know, like, if I had to go down, who do I want to go down with? Uh, it would be anybody but Waiters, basically. <laughs> I, I can't think of a better way to end the podcast. Uh, thank you. Th- thank you so much for coming on. All right, man. Take care. Thanks again to Ben Golver for taking the time. You can read him in Sports Illustrated on SI.com, or you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. He's done some really nice work recently on the offseason, kind of reviewing that, also with the roundtables that SI is doing, and some questions about the the season. I've been really impressed with the work that he's done, part of the reason I like having him on beyond loving to talk to him. So we follow that format, can also do the Pacific Division. I've heard that... It hasn't come out yet. Obviously, that's a division that is near and dear to my heart. I'm just trying to get the right guess and trying to get the timing to work. It ended up being a little bit later, and for that, I am sorry. If you like the podcast, I really do appreciate it. If you can subscribe, if you listen to it on iTunes and write a review. One of the things that I've learned from doing this podcast and doing the Dunked On podcast with Nate Duncan is that having a vocal following and an active following helps you build a following. It makes you get more people. That's the way that the internet works for those of you who are comfortable with things like meme theory and things like that. It makes sense. So it helps if you like this podcast, if you like something that we do. I would mean the world to me if you would tell other people, whether that be through Twitter, word of mouth, anything. I really don't, whatever works. And if you don't, you can give your feedback why. And if you want to spread that why too, I'm not going to stop you. I support people doing whatever they want to do. But being vocal about your support is something that's important. It's also something that I've embraced more doing myself. So if you follow me on Twitter, it's something that I try to do. If I read a piece, no matter whether it's a site I'm affiliated with or a site that I'm not, if I think it is worth your time, I will put it out there. And that is what I think is a part of my role. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to have people that follow me. So that is what I'm going to make as a part of that experience beyond all the other things which you may or may not like. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any insight, I I really do appreciate it. Take care and make it a great day. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.